Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. It's Monday. It's May the 15th. It's a brand new week. We're halfway through the month. And I want to start off by wishing a happy Mother's Day to all the mothers. Yesterday, I didn't get to talk to you all during the weekend. Uh, my wife and I spent it doing a couple of things, basically ignoring social media. I had a viral post that went out there, scored 2 million views, which is always a bad sign when uh, there's not very many people liking it. And I just had rabid leftists yelling about it. So I just got offline. Uh, my wife and I went to church. We took the kids out. We went and did the things that you're supposed to go do. We went and had burgers. We went to some thrift shops. We found a rocking chair for her to nurse our number four along the way. And it made me just think about uh, unplug every once in a while, folks. Get away from social media. I put out a tweet. Some of you will see it on Truth or on Twitter, and you will know it's true. Social media is not real. It really is not. So happy Mother's Day belated to all the moms out there. Without you, none of this happens. It's really the truth. That is the superpower of women. It is the thing that the left fights against so hard right now. Uh, I've seen a bunch of weird things. My wife showed me a picture of a guy who, uh, I guess a gay couple, they kicked the uh, birthing mother out of bed and took the child that they adopted or had surrogacy on and you know put the baby on their chest like they had just had a baby. Um, there is some very strange thing going on where the left is trying to take away the fundamental superpower of women, which is to have babies. I understand it's not all of you, but uh, for those of you that have grateful that you are out there in the world, taking care of children, putting them into the world, and uh, moving this, this strange rock around the sun, making it worth our time to be here. So thanks, moms, and especially my mom. Diane, love you. Thank you so much for being a good mom. Thank you for being a good mom and a good grandmother and for all the teaching that you do in your school. It's special, and uh, we don't always get to say it, but that was the day that we do, and I was thinking about you all day. All right, today is our long-form interview. So for those of you that are new to the Kyle Serafin Show, on Mondays, what we like to do is do a long interview. Now, typically what I've been doing is I've been releasing a pre-taped interview, and um, we just put it up early in the morning, and then you get to watch it. And we're going to do something a little different today. I'm going to do what they call a live premiere, I guess, on YouTube. But I'm going to play you the interview that we recorded. And I'm going to hang out in the chat with you all, and we'll talk about it there. So you may see some. If you're watching on Rumble, you'll actually see some of the interactions. Um, and if you are not joining us on Rumble, you can always find us on Rumble at 9.30 Eastern Time, which is, the more importantly, 8.30 in Texas, America. All right. Uh, we are streaming live right now. I see the chat is already rocking and rolling. It looks like there's a handful of moms in there. So thanks for you all coming in here. Um, I do want to say thanks to our sponsors before we get ahead of ourselves. I've got two sponsors. They're both fantastic. Let's do them in order. Number one, I actually got a coffee mug from them. So let's do that. Catholicvote.org. They have a, a fantastic email group that's called The Loop. And you can check out The Loop. Here's their webpage. They are America's top Catholic advocacy group. And many of you may not know this. If you, In fact, my wife and I got into this the other day. Uh, a lot of people that are in other Christian denominations do not know that the word Catholic, actually, lowercase c, means universal. And CatholicVote.org is one of those great groups. They are a pro-life organization. They are about faith, family, and freedom. If those sound like they're up your alley, then you can go check out their news feed. They give you things that are going to be interesting to all Christians, not just Catholics. Um, and they will... Um, 
kind of point you in the right direction about political advocacy, candidates that hold the same values, whether you are a confirmed Catholic or not, you know, many of you know that I am, um, that's not really what it's about. Uh, it, it's, it's you know, not church politics. Well, one of the conversations I had with their president was, you know, we don't want to talk about how many candles need to be on the altar. And I'm 100% into that because I don't know how many candles need to be in the altar. But what I do know is, is that our country is under attack from a very secular religion, this leftism. And I want us to push back. And catholicvote.org is one of those places that you can do it. So check them out by all means. And um, and then our second sponsor, many of you are already familiar with them and you've been seeing their products. In fact, I have one here with me as well. I don't know why they all have beverage vessels, but they do. Um, this is Patriot Coolers, and you can find them at patriotcoolers.com. Look at that. That'd be great. We need a suspendables Patriot Cooler. This is their 1.0 uh, edition. I actually stole this from my wife. It says Patriot right here on the front of it. 13 stars. I'm sorry, 13 stripes. It's got the 50 stars on the bottom, just like all the other ones do. This one doesn't have a lid on it for right now, so I got to be cautious. And they're fantastic at keeping beverages hot or cold, whatever you put in there. They've got soft-sided tumblers. This is their webpage right here. You can check them out. It's a really good company. The best thing about them, other than the fact that they sponsor the Kyle Serafin Show and they say Patriot on the side, is that they give back to disabled vets. They help people who are uh, experiencing mobility issues after their military service. And so they uh, give money back up to close to $400,000, it looks like. And my brother actually has an affiliation with this company and he's seen them hand those checks over. So by all means, check them out. They're a Houston, Texas company. That is to say they are from Texas, America. And uh, just a good group of people. They were our first sponsor to jump on, so we're really appreciative. All right, today's interview. He's an author. He is a former police officer with over 21 years of service. And you may know him because he was on the ill-fated Breonna Taylor raid. There was a search warrant. It went sideways. There was shooting. There are at least five things that most people do not know about John Mattingly and his experience on that night. I'm going to let him tell his story in his own words. As you, many of you know, we don't, uh, we don't have to push any agenda. I just let people say it. And John is one of those really, really fun people to talk to. I think you're going to enjoy it. Full disclosure, I taped this a couple days ago. I'm wearing a different shirt in the video than I am right now. So I want you to understand if you're watching on our Rumble channel, I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. You know that we're all about transparency here. So I'm queuing up a, uh, a video talking to John Mattingly, who goes by at Sergeant Mattingly on Twitter and True Social. Many of you will see that. Give him a follow, if you will. And uh, let's jump into this. I'm going to join you all in the chat. Here we go. We're bringing on John Mattingly. He's a retired police sergeant, 21 years with the Louisville Metro PD. He's also a window licker and a crayon eater, my kind of guy, just a regular dude, a regular American who got himself into one of those things that's bound to happen if you spend enough time in the profession. I think you're going to really enjoy the story. We're going to go ahead and plug his socials up front. We don't always do that, but I want you guys to follow him. You can find him on Twitter, which is where my biggest presence is. And it's at SGT Mattingly. I'm going to do my best, John, not to call you Don Mattingly because I grew up watching the Yankees with Don Mattingly. I was never a Yankees fan, but I always loved Don Mattingly. That was like the baseball card I wanted. Um, welcome to the show, bud. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, my entire life, people have said, man, is that your uncle? Are you kin to him? You know, sometime I play along. Oh, yeah, but no, I wish I were. It'd been nice to have some front row uh, Yankee tickets back in the day. Yeah, for sure. And it's one of those names where, like, especially because you you rhyme with it. It's perfectly it's perfectly yeah. suited for people to screw it up. That's it. All right, I'm going to do my best to resist that. I called you the wrong name on Twitter at one point, too. That was also really good. I you don't did. Know what you I, called me what Matt, I, I think. 
I think you just call me Matt. Yeah. You're probably I've thinking about, Mattingly and just said Matt. Yeah. I got about 50 Matt's in my uh in my sphere. I've got a bunch of Steve's too. So if you're a Steve, I'm always good because I will just throw a Steve out left and right. I got an attorney named Steve. I got a buddy named Steve Friend. I got like six former agents. It's a mess. Uh, but that's a real safe bet. And I didn't know any Steve's before I did all this stuff, by the way. That's the other dumb thing. That's crazy. Yeah. The way it goes. So you and I met up at uh, at America Fest. So mm-hmm. you're one of my few uh, kind of uh, interesting guests that I haven't, that I've actually got to spend time in first, you know, in person. That's not always the case. I kind of like that. That's how I can call you a window licker. And I feel like we're on the same tribe. That's right. All good. <laughs> all good. Um, all right. Tell people where you grew up. I like to just kind of get, uh, let people know who they're dealing with. So where you grew up and then how you got into policing, why that choice, uh, you know, brought you there. And then we'll get into a little bit of your career and then we'll let people know why you got that book behind you. And, and I'm sure people want to know that. And then what's happened since so that's kind of my thoughts. Uh, where'd you come up? Yes, yeah, so I grew up in Louisville my entire life. Uh, actually, in the the what's called the West End of Louisville, which is the urban area. Uh, so it was very diverse, very poor. Um, we lived when you in say inner diverse, city. That sounds like a code word for something. Yeah, we were black, white. You know, we were just mixed. I mean, we. But like you, we grew up in an era where we're supposed to be colorblind, and it worked. You know, we played ball at the park together. There weren't fights. There wasn't name calling. There wasn't people so sensitive and always looking for that that little dig going. Oh, that's racist. Just didn't happen. That grievance so, culture uh, is like a new thing because you and I are roughly in the same age bracket. I think. Yeah. Well, I'm I'm 50. I don't know what you are. I'm coming mid forties or something. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Young man. Uh, so <laughs> so okay with it. growing up growing up with no money and in an inner city like that and seeing drugs happen, seeing fights, seeing Things, you know, that that most people that live in the suburbs just don't see or deal with. They live in this fantasy world that everything's like where they live. And so having that advantage in my back pocket was huge when I got on the police department because I knew how to talk to people. I didn't look at them like, oh, my gosh, who are you? Or walk in a house, even the nasty houses you walk in, but I'd seen it. So it wasn't a culture shock to me. And uh, another positive I had is I didn't come on the police department until I was 27. So I had a little bit of life experience with maturity. My my wife might disagree with the maturity part, but uh, with maturity. So that's it. They got to keep us in check. So having that in my back pocket going to the police department, I think super was a super advantage to me because I saw many guys that, you know, went to a private Catholic school and then went away to college, got their degree, came back, got on the police department, and they threw them down with all the black people that they had never hung around their whole whole life. And they go down there and all of a sudden they're like, I mean, you can see the eyes big, nervous, and, and I'm like, dude, this, they're just like you and me. They just have different problems. We've all got problems. Theirs is just different. You know, That's theirs right. is inherent, unfortunately, because um, I remember my, my first year on the police department, even though I grew up in an environment like that, I wasn't in the projects. So my beat was on the projects, and I was midnight to eight, so I'm riding around, and I remember looking up and seeing this little two, three-year-old little black boy walking around diaper so full and sagging it was down to his knees two in the morning three in the morning something like there's a hot summer night they didn't have air conditioning so everybody's out in the projects then and i remember looking at that kid going my goodness he don't have a chance i mean you know he's walking around this environment with dudes throwing dice people selling dope people fighting and you look at it and just go i get it i mean even though i already got it i got it even more you know the longer you did this job the more you saw went I get why we're in the shape we're in in this country as far as, you know, the, the, if you want to call it inequity, I don't 
really believe in that, but I think people do unfortunately get stuck behind the eight ball early. And if they don't have enough fortitude or enough teaching to, to teach them how to pull out of it, you know, they just follow in the footsteps of what they've learned. A hundred percent. You're talking about not having a chance. That makes a lot of sense. Also, it sounds like the guys that you worked with that had the big wide eyes, they could have been feds. They would have been perfect for that. <laughs> I'll stay away from that for now. Yeah, that's, that's I'll come back to it. Don't yeah. So, um, so I got on the part when I was 27, I already had three small children. I mean, like they were three, three and under, I had like an eight month old, a, a two year old and a three year old. So life was hectic and it was, it was, it was fun though, man. Best first five years, first three or four years, probably the best time of your career, as far as everything's new to you and exciting. And you haven't been jaded by the system yet. And, you know, you think you're saving the world when in reality, you're just plugging the hole that of the, the, the biggest hole in the ship that to keep it from sinking at that moment where you're at. Right. Um, but so, you know, I did late watch for five years. Then I went into narcotic stuff for four and then I got promoted to sergeant, had to go back to late watch. Um, and then I went to a detective bureau for a year and a half, two years, uh, where did it, we took care of everything except homicides and bank robberies. And I did that for about two years. And I got tired of it, man. I wasn't a suit and tie guy, all the reports. I felt like a fed and I was like, this ain't me. <laughs> so I said, now put me back in narcotics. So, uh, first I went to a gang unit. It, it was a violent crime unit for another three years. And that, that was actually the most fun of my career, hardest ever worked, but hands on every day, foot chases, fights, car chases, warrants. I mean, it was nonstop. And so it was like living a cops episode every single day. And I loved it. Um, then that unit ended up getting, uh, new leadership, couldn't stand them. So I left and went back to our major case narcotics and did that until, uh, March 13th, 2020, when, you know, the Breonna Taylor case happened. And that's the chaos. Now, how many sworn, uh, officers in, uh, in Louisville? Well, we're authorized for 1300. Now there's only about a thousand and we're small authorized because we're, we're comparable to like Indy and Nashville and they have like 2,500. Um, so we're already, smaller in comparison, even though like our homicide rate in 20, uh, 2020, we have, we're under a million people in Louisville, just under in the, in the metropolitan area. And we had 182 homicides. So it's not like the crime in there. We had 800 shootings that year. So the crime's there, uh, just yeah. a lack of police, you know, you can't, you can't be everywhere. How did you, how did you see that uh, change over your, over your career? So you got 20 years, you get to see two decades. I think tr- policing changed dramatically over those times. You know, were you guys doubled up originally or was it always single patrol? How did that run? No, we were always single just because like I said, we're understaffed for, for the size city we are. Um, the, I saw a couple big changes first when, when the cell phones came out, things changed drastically then because all of a sudden you are held more accountable and that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. But the things that that may have been accepted in policing kind of got changed. You know, there wasn't the heavy handedness as much. There wasn't putting people in line. But at the same hand or at the same time, once that stuff went away, it's kind of like when you take punishment away from your kids because you want to be their friend. Then all of a sudden what happens, they get wilder and wilder and again out of control. That's kind of how it went on the street. But then the real change, man, happened in 2014, 2015. Uh, during Obama's second term, you could just, and this is before the Michael Brown thing, you could feel it on the street, man. Things just changed. Uh, I remember after he called that guy into the White House or called that that professor, the, the police oh, officer yeah. that made the run to the professor's house and he called yeah. him out and, and looked like a fool. I mean, at least he, you know, apologized and brought him in for a beer, but, um, but the damage was done. Once yeah. that stuff's put out by somebody in authority, that damage is done. And it, it's very hard to backtrack from that. So, when that happened on the streets, what, what we mainly saw were the younger criminals coming up, the 14, 15-year-olds shooting people, carrying guns. 
And the funny thing is the OGs, the older guys that were, you know, gang members their whole life, you could talk to them. You could pull up on the side of the road and just, and just shoot shit with them. They didn't care. And most of the time they were respectful as long as you were respectful. And I remember having a couple of different conversations with these guys who are known as shooters, known as, as bad dudes. And they were like, dude, we're even a little scared out here because there's no more code on the street. There's no more, uh, uh, you know, rule of thumb as far as don't go after cops. Don't shoot kids. Don't, you know, all these, these street rules they had were suddenly out the window because everybody's making their play to be in, in control and an authority uh, on the streets. And, and things just after 2015, things were different. And we had that lull in policing for a while. It kind of came back. And then in 20, it never got back to where it was. But sure. then in 2020, the, you know, the train came off the rails. Hundred percent. Yeah. Now y- you travel around a lot. Now you talk to a lot of different groups of people. Some of them, I'm sure, are cops and uh, you know groups of cops. I know you're in places where you do that. Do they have the mm-hmm. same instinct that that was kind of the, the change point that that uh, that uh, tidal shift that happened 2014, 2015? Well, you know as well as I do, there's a lot of young cops now. You know, mm-hmm. all the all the old regime kind of was like, man, I'm out. But yeah, the older guys are thrown in their pension as soon as they can get it now, and that oh, it's unreal. You used to have no, to drag out off the job. Man, when I came on, here, here's an example. When I came on, um, I was on late watch at first, so we'd have to come back in for roll call, and all the old, crusty day work guys were sitting there. Half of them looked hungover still, you know, red noses. And and we would get there, and I'm not kidding. The youngest guy on day work would have like 25 years experience, up to like 35, 40 years. I mean, these guys would hang on forever. That's, yeah. It was their whole life. It was their entire identity. And to get on midwatch, you had to have like 15 years on just to get on midwatch, unless there was some fluke or, you know, an opening that somebody didn't want. Um, but now, man, they're taking brand new guys, throwing them on day work because there's just no bodies. There's nobody there. So, yeah, when I talk to the older guys, definitely. It's all the same. Everybody felt kind of the same shift in, in the paradigm that happened then. Um, but the young guys are just oblivious to it. You know, this is all they know. For sure. It's interesting that you mentioned that the like the criminal element you're dealing with also recognized it and they didn't like it either. They, I mean, no. there's something to be said about kind of a pecking order and established rule. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe you, you know where, where the line is and when you can step out of it. And those guys kind of push the envelope where they needed to for whatever their end was. But you guys knew that, you know, they knew there was going to be retribution if that happened. And then then you get this sort of Wild West mentality where anything goes. You got Billy the Kid out there doing things that are off the rails. And those old guys, too, they knew they knew how to play the system. They knew how to cooperate just enough to keep you off their back. But these young guys are like, F you. We're not talking to the police. You know, we're the total enemy until they have a wound in them. And you're down there putting your hand on their sucking wound, trying to keep them alive. And then you know, everything's good. But, but yeah, it's, it's definitely a, uh, an issue. Yeah. It's so strange. And, and that was what Freddie Gray was what? 2014. Is that correct? Is that no, it was Michael Brown? Michael Freddie, Brown. Or he was right after it. I think he was 16. Pretty great up in Pennsylvania. Okay. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Phil maybe. Yeah. They kind of, okay. they kind of backed on each other. You had Trayvon Martin. That was first. That That's started right. all the black lives matter stuff. And then you had Michael Brown, then you had Freddie gray. Yep. And then there was a couple year gap and then there was somebody else and, you know, flip a, whatever his name was, or, you know, that guy. <laughs> yeah. It's, and it's terrible because it just sort of stacked on the wrong direction. And so kind of maybe speak a little bit more about uh, the stuff that, you know, you're not, you're not just policing, obviously, and just only dealing with bad guys. You're dealing with victims, too. What was the sort of mentality of the people that you were policing the neighborhoods of that had to deal with this stuff as they saw it? Oh, huge fear. I mean, because you go in these urban areas and everybody, 
you know, we stereotype. It's just human nature. You stereotype things when you see it or what you see on TV is what it is in people's minds. Kind of like when CSI came out and they thought we could work miracles with a fingerprint or right. with a laser. And you're like, dude, this ain't how it works. It is nothing like this. Or they watch the FBI shows on TV because FBI is popular on TV. Like apparently we all sons like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. And you're all, you're all chasing people in your suits and, and I'm like, they can't even pull people over. You know, people don't understand the real, (laughs) how this thing really works. And I remember my son, my youngest son now was like, man, I want to be an FBI when I get older. He said, what's more fun FBI or police? I said, well, I've never been an FBI, but I've worked with them and probably 90% of them never leave their desk. Uh, Then you got your hard chargers, you guys that are actually terrorism task forces or whatever that do work. But a lot of them are, you know, accountants, lawyers, whatever you guys are. Um, smarter than us, obviously, but boring. <laughs> I don't want to do it. I told him, if you want to have action, you want to be a, you want to be a street cop. It's just the way it is. That's correct. Yeah. I used to tell uh, people whenever I'd meet them, they'd go, uh, you know, you're not what I expected when I met a fed. And I was like, oh yeah, they're a bunch of nerds. And then you always make rapport that way with people. Cause, cause everybody laughs, yeah. but, but it's not false. That's not a false statement. There's a lot of nerds in the federal services. Uh, maybe not the marshal service, and probably less so in DEA. I don't know if you worked with DEA at all, but those I guys did. Are be a little bit more cowboy like. They got a little. They're a little bit more, you know, mill spec type uh, dudes coming through the academy that I saw. But I tell you what, the ATF, the ATF, at least in Louisville, um, they did very little gun stuff. They were they mainly did drug stuff. I mean that that's how they where they hung their hat on. Nope. And um, so they, we were. I worked with ATF, DEA, and FBI. I had TFOs in the in the FBI and DEA that reported to me, and I had clearance to the FBI. So when I would go to their building. You'd walk in and man, they'd look at you like you were scum. I mean, you'd walk on the floor and you could just feel the eyeballs on you. And you're like, dude, you don't have a clue. I mean, you're smart. You can run these cases. You can pull backgrounds. You know, y'all have got all the intelligence stuff down. It's great. We need you for some stuff. But don't look at me like I'm not I'm not a policeman because you haven't done, you know, a 20th of what I've done. That That is um, a uniquely weird thing. I, I never understood it. I've seen it. I, I know what you're talking about. I actually had a classmate who was in Montana, of all places, and she she was useless. She's still useless, I'm sure. Um, you know, open cases and uh, open cases literally just to open them up so that they would be like, we have 100 new cases, you know, and she'd be running around with her head cut off, not working any of them, uh, calling right. in for re- reinforcements to work them kind of thing. And she was at a dinner party, apparently, and this is in a, a middle of nowhere in Montana. And you know, who knows? She might even listen to this. So that's even funnier. But uh, Ashley, I'm watching you. I, I know what's going on. <laughs> and uh, she, she gets in front of us, some local cops. And this was sort of the legend is that she went out there and the guys that worked in the office closest to this town were, were really good with the local PD because you need them. Like they worked with the county sheriff. You know, they worked with the uh, the Indian police. Like all this stuff had to be done because you're in the middle of nowhere. And right. apparently she went to some dinner party and met some cops and they were kind of talking to her and they were kind of giving her some gentle like fed ribbing, which you deserve. And she said, I have a real job. I work national security. Like she was all huffy about it. And uh, all the guys that worked in the office turned around and went to the supervisor and they're like, she can't come work with us. So she got, <laughs> booted. she got booted a hundred miles away to another little, wow. house, another little thing. So she was like 150 miles away from her husband's uh, hospital because she said, I can't, believe, human being. I can't believe the leadership stepped up and did that. Well, I mean, it was a very small place. He's one of the few dudes that actually was like a, you know, like a manager's, you know, a case right. agent manager type. He stepped in sort of reluctantly into management. And uh, and that kind of leads me to the question about management in your PD. Did you see, <laughs> you know, the hard chargers that wanted to go up there and say, hey, I'm also going to climb the ranks and protect the guys? Or was it people that uh, had different mindsets like we see in all the cop shows? Yeah, it's different mindsets. You had, you know, you've got your 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 one off somewhere. That that actually climbed the ranks or did good as that that had the background that we did. But even those guys, once they get up there, and I understand, you know, I was only a sergeant 
And I did that reluctantly because my boss looked at me and said, are you taking this test? I said, heck no, man, I'm out here hitting doors, having fun. Why do I want to be, I don't want to be command. And she said, well, look around you who they're hiring, who they're promoting bunch of idiots. I was like, that's true. She said, do you want to work for them or do you want to work with them? I went, that's a good point. So I took the sergeant's test because you're still, you're still tied to the hip of the guys. You're not, you know, you're not removed. You're not behind a desk like a lieutenant. And so once I got there, I was like, I'll never take the lieutenant's test because it's all political once you get to that point. Because after that, then it's it's political appointee after lieutenant. So all those guys are stabbing each other in the back, trying to get that next job for their yeah, resume, right. for their money, for whatever it is. And I just had no desire in it. So our command, yeah, probably 95% of them are the guys that never did a thing. And um, it's sad that those guys are the ones telling you how to do things and, and making the decisions. Yeah, whether you can or can't do something that they've never done themselves, you know, telling you whether you can swear something out or whether you can go and pursue a case that they would never have had any background experience. And, and you know, I looked at it from the bureau side of it and I saw similar stuff, but, you know, I, half the time I didn't have experience either. I was like, this sucks. I'm trying to get experience here. Like, <laughs> like, like let me off the chain, you clowns. Well, uh, it's getting worse and worse, like we talked about earlier with the with the younger generation coming up, because, you know, once all that wisdom and that 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 knowledge retires or leaves, that's not passed on. Because right. now all of a sudden you got these gaping holes and they're going, oh, okay, now you're a detective. Here you go. Good luck. Learn it. And you're like, oh, what do I do here? Well, now you're reinventing the wheel again. Some of it's good. Some of it's bad. But it takes that, you know, you got that lag time to catch up. And uh, it's not a it's not a very smart environment as far as the way they do things. Well, there used to be that you say those guys that had to get dragged off the job 30, 35, 40 years, and they had that institutional knowledge. And when they're sitting there at some point, they, you know, slow down but they still have all the wisdom to be able to pass on yeah. and they snarky ways and they, and they share culture. And that's, it sounds like that's disappearing. Yeah. And I don't know if this was the way in the agency, but when we came on the guys, you never went to your Sergeant for something. You definitely didn't go to your Lieutenant because the old guys on the beat with you, they're the ones that kept you in check. They're the ones that called you out in front of other people that made you feel like an idiot. So you're like, I ain't doing that again. Right. And so we're, we've lost that. Totally. So now everybody is so scared to make any decision. Number one, they go to their boss and go, Oh, what do I do? I don't know how to do it. I'm like, dude, you're a man. You've got a gun and a badge. They gave you this authority. Use it, use common sense with it. But you, well, there's not much sense in common anymore, but use common sense with it and, and, and do the right thing. That's all you gotta do is do the right thing. But then the sergeant goes, Oh, I don't know. Let me call my boss. And now you've got all this chain of command involved and it just gets totally screwed up. It's a disaster. It, it makes perfect sense. I'm going to throw this over at Professor. Uh, uh, I always call him Professor because Phil wears glasses. People never get to see Phil in the back. <laughs> he wears glasses. He has an accounting degree and he's kind of professorial. So anyway, uh, Producer Phil, did you see much of the um, people going directly to management? And did that change at all for the Bureau guys? Steve, and I Steve Friend and I just had this conversation like just the other day, John. We were literally talking about how you should never go to your manager because they don't know anything. <laughs> No. no, yeah, I told you one of the worst examples. We had a 23-year-old in our new agents class, microbiologist. And uh, this was the time when you could go to Hoover Building in three years. So she was 26 at Hoover as a supervisor and got a field desk three years later. So she was 29 years old leading a squad of folks down in Miami. And that's just... And that squad, wow. that squad had dudes who were in their 50s. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's not very good. No, but it, it kind of tells you everything you need to know about sort of culture. And and that's kind of how mm -hmm. they go sideways. I'm sure that happened in police departments. And I wonder if it's, oh, yeah. some of it's age. I wonder if some of it's technology or what, but it's yeah, definitely, I don't know. They want to be spoon fed the answers. They don't want to go learn it the hard way, which is probably by screwing up, probably by being embarrassed by your, your peers. But like you say, mm -hmm. then you can do it again. Right. 
Right. And, and unfortunately, everybody wants to pass the buck now because with the scrutiny that comes along with this job now, that's so much higher than it's ever been. You know, nobody wants to be the one that said, yeah, I'm the one that told him to do that. You know, because if things go sideways, who's held accountable? The person that says I made the call. And so nobody's just willing to step up and do it. Nobody has any balls. So it's what it boils down to. Yeah, that checks out. So, you know, 20 years ago, our society was still pretty litigious, but less litigious than it is today. Did you kind of do you see that creep in on your guys? And did it affect decision making, street decisions and management decisions? Oh, absolutely. From from anything from lawsuits to get demoted to whatever pressure that the mayor's office, because let's face it. Police chiefs are run by mayor's offices. They're they're just their faces. They don't make decisions. And if they do, they get their PP smacked and the mayor goes, no, I don't want to do that. We're going to do this. And they change course, change policy. Um, in our case, we had a female um, uh, assistant mayor. The, she was the number two in the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. Her name is Ellen Hessen. And this lady, apparently, I was never involved in these meetings, but from everybody I've talked to that were in these meetings through the chief's office and the, the upper command that I've talked to since said, she pulled every string. If the chief stepped up and said, Hey, we want to do this. She would inter- inter- rudely interrupt him in front of everybody and cut him off. No, we're doing this. And he would just kind of slunch and go, okay, we're doing that. Instead yeah. of standing up and going, no, it's not good for the community. It's not good for my people, anything. Everything was politics, politics, politics. And uh, that's why since I've gone through this, I'm like, we need more elected sheriffs to run things. Screw the, screw the police departments. And I was always a, you know, a police guy. I'm not a sheriff. I'm a, I'm a police, you know, I'm a city cop. And uh, all that crap's out the door now, though. I'm like, dude, just do the right thing. Let's get some elected sheriffs who who can make decisions. And and if they, people don't like it, they can vote them out in four years. But now you don't have at least a mayor. You've got at least a couple different accountabilities. You've got the mayor run the city and and the sheriff run the department. That's the way it should be, I think. Kind of like Congress, Senate, President, you know, your different branches yeah. of government. It should be that way in, in the local area, too. Well, they've given all that stuff away too. So we've gotten more and more centralized, but it's funny. I'm, I think you're in my head right now. We're on the same wavelength. I was going to ask you if you could tell people the difference, because I think there is a distinct difference. And most people don't actually have the uh, the nuanced difference between a police department and a sheriff's office. I only know it because I went to interview for a sheriff's office job. And every time somebody would be like, well, this department, and he was like, office, we're not a department. Departments work underneath the mayor. Like we're an office that's elected. And there's a big That's difference. Right. You might kind of explain Huge difference. Why, that, why that makes a difference for them when they're dealing with law enforcement. Yeah, because regardless of what city you're in with, with the police, if it's a Republican mayor, they they bring in somebody who's going to answer to them on the police department on the right-leaning side. If it's Democrat, and like in our case, we're a very progressive city. We had a super progressive mayor. Our department was the flagship department for 20, 21st century policing under Barack Obama. Uh, they send our people up there once a month to these meetings to to do whatever Obama's team wanted. They come back and implement that to us. And then they had to report back to it. So we were kind of the poster children for that. And, and it's funny though, we did all the things they said, this is 13, 14, 15. And now guess who's running our department, the DOJ, because they said everything we've done in these years is all screwed up. I'm like, wait a minute, we were your flagship. You told us to do all these things. We did it. And now you came in and took over because we did it wrong. So who does that really fall on? Now they'll, right. they'll never say that, but who's a fall on? We know. So, and so, uh, decree, is that what's going on They're They're running under. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Just came out two months ago, maybe a month ago. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but you know, the guys are at least getting training now, anything they put in for, they're like, Oh, sure. All of a sudden money came out of nowhere. It's really weird. You know, before no overtime, no money, no training, none of this. Now all of a sudden, Oh, whatever you need, this is what you're doing. Uh, it's all CYA is all it is. So the sheriffs, let's go back to that. Yep. So here's a great example of it. 
So Miles Cosgrove, the guy that was with me that didn't get charged as well, the guy when I went down, stepped over and was shooting down the hallway. He got fired gonna, from our yeah, police we'll, department. We'll get into all that because I know that's people are sitting here like, why are you not talking about the one thing I want to know? It's like because I want to know other things. You wrote a whole book about so, that. Your book. It's it right here. There so uh, on uh, about a month ago, a sheriff's office. So this dude's been blackballed from everywhere. I mean, he couldn't get he got, he went and got his CDL. Trucking companies were finding out a trucker. You can't even be a trucker with that reputation. They were firing him, and so this sheriff stuck his neck out and hired him in Carroll County, and. People were throwing a fit. And it wasn't even people from that county. They didn't care. It's a pretty conservative county. But right. the mayor of that county and the police chief came out with negative statements against him. And I'm thinking, man, you're in the same county. And so the chief did exactly what the mayor did, basically said what he said because he answers to the mayor. Whether he believed it or not, he right. was cowardly enough to put it out. And then you had the sheriff who said, screw y'all. I don't have to answer to you because the mayor was like, he didn't even run it through me. And the sheriff came back and said, I'm not obligated to run it to you. This is my this is my department or whatever it is, office. Awesome. This is my office. I can do whatever I want. That's right. And if you don't like it, vote me out. And so, you know, that's a great example of, of somebody who looks at things and goes, okay, I'm going to do the right thing because I make the call and not, not my boss. And that, that's the difference in sheriff and police. It's a big deal. It's a, it's a, I think you're right. I think it's a check or a balance on an otherwise sort of same think these sort of monotonous and uh, and uniformly homogenous sort of groups that are that are out there trying to punch forward really bad policy. It's the worst policy for policing of any kind. And and right. people and most people are actually underneath both a sheriff's department and if they live in a uh, an urban area then they have a police department as well. So they can kind of pick and choose who they call in some ways, yeah? As I mean they can they can at least have the possibility of having someone that represents them in a more appropriate way to their politics. Generally, generally, like how, how it works is in city limits, inside city limits, not the metropolitan area. At least this is how it was in Jefferson County, which is Louisville. In the okay. city limits, the police ran things in the urban in the suburban areas, the county. Uh, that's where the sheriffs kind of had domain. Um, I think it's that way in a lot of cities. I, I don't nope. know if there's actually. But the sheriff's. Is L.A. County might be different. But that may be true. Yeah, the, but sheriff's deputies. Because they're both together. Have, they got to have authority when they still are in the city, right? They don't lose the authority. Oh yeah, no, they they uh, sheriffs actually have more authority because they've got so like they, statewide authority. Sure. So they, yeah, they had more jurisdiction than we had, even though in in Jefferson County our sheriffs do less. They're more the they run the courthouse, they do EPOs, DVOs. They got a few street units, but it's not like they don't they don't patrol areas. That checks out. Okay, fair enough. They are just responding to more rural calls as well. Right, All right. right. Well, we, we open up the door. Let's go ahead and walk through it. You got a book behind you. Tell people what they can kind of expect and um, and why they should read your book on there. I want to talk about that. And then we're going to talk about the aftermath too, because I think that's where it gets real spicy and, and weird. Yeah. But um, 12 seconds in the dark, obviously a life-changing experience for you. You set up the day maybe a little bit and kind of, you can tease out something. If you want to leave details out and have them buy your book, I'm good with that too, folks. <laughs> yeah. So get the book. Uh, <laughs> I don't make much off of it. Everybody's, oh, you're on a book. You know, you're profiting off of death. I'm like, Screw you guys. No, my, my number one, my life has been totally ripped apart financially. Everything was when this happens, everything gets taken from you. Right. And um, and I said, This is my story. St. Brianna Taylor's story this is my story. I don't care if people talk about her. I think she was a victim in all this as well, uh, just because of circumstances with the boyfriends taking advantage. Um, but this is about number one, talks about a little bit about my life, early days when I got on the police department, a couple little stories. Then goes into the, the event of that night. And then after that, like you said, all the aftermath. That's what the majority of the book's about, all the screwed up stuff that happened afterwards. And um, so main thing was getting out ahead of 
not ahead, trying to catch up and put out the truth. So when this happened back on, this was March, this is a Friday, the 13th, full moon night, horrible. Yeah. Of all the, all the things that lined up, this is one of them. Yep. Um, and we had a brief and I come out my flat and my tires are flat on my car. The car behind me has got flat tires. Somebody walked through our parking lot and poked some tires. So I go in, finally find a pool car, um, get out to the scene. I'd forgotten a couple of things in my car from transferring all the gear over. I left my tourniquet of all things. Yeah. In my glove box, I took it off my vest. And I usually stick it in my glove box, forgot my tourniquet. The one thing I needed that night besides my gun. And so, um, and so when we got there, but the, the biggest lies that a, our, my department never came out and confronted my city, never came out and confronted the politicians. I reached out to refused to address it, which is, is pretty sickening. When you, when you look at all the people I've talked to and contacted, not one of them had the guts to stand up. Unbelievable. And so I'm going to run through a couple of real quick lies, and this is what the book kind of uh, pushes back on and actually gives uh, data and evidence that these are lies. And number one was they said we had the wrong apartment. Ben Crump came out. Kamala Harris came out. LeBron James came out. They all came out were like, oh, they weren't even at the right house. They had the wrong apartment. They just came in and started shooting people. That's not true. Everything on that warrant is related to Breonna Taylor, her name, address, social vehicle, house description, everything. And not only that, she wasn't in bed asleep. Unfortunately, she got shot in the hallway. Um, so it's lie number two. They said Jamarcus Glover, who was the other boyfriend, not the one that was at the house with her, but the one that was at the trap house. They're like, oh, he was arrested 10 hours earlier on an arrest warrant. I'm like, no, none of that's true. He was arrested the same exact time. And these were search warrants, not arrest warrants. People yep. don't, they're not comprehending the difference. And You're going in looking for know. evidence. Yeah. An arrest warrants when I've got the judges signed, go lock Cal Serafin up. Mm-hmm. Uh, search warrants like, Okay, you're allowed to go search Kyle Serafin's car or house or business or whatever. And so we were there on search warrants to retain evidence for the ongoing case. There was five warrants that night. He wasn't locked up in the same time. He, I mean, he was locked up at the same time. He wasn't already in custody. Um, what's another thing they said? Oh, uh, we didn't find anything in the house. No evidence found in the house. We weren't allowed to search. After I got shot, they took me to the hospital. Our public integrity unit came in. They drafted their own search warrants for the evidence for the, for the shooting. Casings, blood. Um, trajectory, all that stuff. Took their photos, dug out drywall, did whatever they did. Mm-hmm. But they didn't search for drugs. Now, did they do a cursory search on the on the top? Yeah, but that's not where people had drugs and money. You know, they're they're in shoe boxes and attics, cut out holes and mattresses underneath uh, dresser drawers. You pull out. None of that was looked at. So we had a lot of stains on this coming out. Going, people believed all this stuff. They heard it. We're like, my goodness, these guys screwed up. This was botched because it's all you hear is botched, botched, botched. I'm going. And the only thing botched was I got shot and we didn't hit our target. I mean, you know, that if you call that botched, then I guess it's botched. But um, it was tragic. It was something that went sideways quick, but, you know, not much we could do about that. Yep. Now, I think it's a good point that you mentioned that you guys didn't actually get to complete the search because that would have changed the game, at least in the public narrative. But unfortunately, it's uh, it's like information warfare when you go into this stuff. And, and this probably was your first foray into that world, right? I mean, you hadn't had to go fight one of these things in public like that before. Oh, no, no. I think, you know, 99.9% of police never have to, thank God. Um, You know, it's just these cases that are, we had the, we had the the perfect storm. So Breonna Taylor was in March. You had Ahmaud Aubrey in April. Mm -hmm. Then you had George Floyd in May. So these things were just stacking on each other during a a heated election cycle where no politician is going to take any sides except the one that they think is going to get them the votes. And, um, and so, when Ahmad Aubrey happened, the attorney for Breonna Taylor's 
family reached out to Ben Crump because she had she had uh, worked for him when she was in college. She did an internship for him. And she reached out and said, hey, Brown Taylor's not getting any attention. Um, black female killed by a white cop. Can you do something? Well, Ben Crump, ding, 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 money. Absolutely, I can do something. I'll come in and throw a firebomb in your city, take my cash and run and leave you all to pick up the pieces. That's what I'm good at, right? That's what he does. Good so that's what he did. And then, unfortunately, it was picking up steam then. That was in April. Everything started building up and you could feel the tension in the city rise in April, uh, late April, early May. And I remember reaching out to our city council president, who was a former cop, retired cop, trained me in the academy, trained us how to do these search warrants, trained us how to do these entries because he was on SWAT. You know, all the things that we did were things he taught us. And he's a black guy and he's now president of our of our city council in Louisville. He retired, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago and then started that career and has built his way up. And now he's assistant mayor of all things. Mm-hmm. And I reached out to him and said, hey, David, man, can you help me on this? Here's what's being said. Here's the truth. I laid it all out. And he said, yeah, the mayor's a coward. I'll do a press conference Monday to get the truth or next week to get the truth out. I was like, great. Somebody on my side that's got a little bit of juice, you know, because we had gag orders on us. So I couldn't get out there and talk then. And a week went by, two weeks went by, three weeks went by. N- next thing I know, I see him on a live uh, midday news show saying, oh, they shouldn't have done it. Oh, that's this is a big one. They shouldn't have done the no-knock warrant. It was a tactic, you know, bad policing, this and that. Man, I start texting him right in the middle of that going, you're an effing coward, dude. Why don't you tell the truth? You know, number one, you know it wasn't a no-knock warrant. And that's one of the things that that that's a burr in the saddle, probably more than anything, because that everything is is predicated on that. Even even Rand Paul, who I like, got on there and pushed his agenda through on our backs, going the Justice for Breonna Taylor Act is what he called it to pass the no knock ordinance. And I'm thinking, number one, tell me what justice is. Can you define justice in this case? Nobody can. Everybody I ask that throws that out. I go, what is it? Yeah, what, 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 what is happen? justice for any of these people? What, uh, yeah, you don't know. I mean, it's different. Number one, but tell me if you're gonna if you're gonna pound your pound your hand and say this is it, then tell me what the justice is, so I can at least go. You're right. Justice wasn't done. Um, so it wasn't a no knock warrant, like everybody says. Originally signed as that, yes. But when we came to the brief that night, they said, "Hey, this no longer fits the parameters. We know the main target is not going to be there, so just serve it as a knock and announce, and give her extra time." So, no, not only did we not serve it as a no knock, we gave extra time for her to come to the door because our intel was bad. They said she's a heavy set black female. She's home alone, no guns, no kids, no dogs, no boyfriends. Totally wrong. And um, so, you know that that was just another mistake down the line of little mistakes that when you add them all up are huge, especially in the, in the public spotlight. Yeah. When you say mistakes, this is just bad information in the public sphere. It has nothing to do with what actually happened. As far as showing up and doing a knock and announce, that's what everybody does. You bang on the door. People who've never experienced it, you know, all they can do is see it from TV where, you know, they just run up and hit it with a ram or something and take down a door. That's not how it works. Uh, No, we were there for a minute, man. A minute feels like an eternity when you're at a door, not knowing what's on the other side. Nobody who hasn't been on the other side of a door has no idea what that looks like. But yeah, first the first 10 seconds feel like you've waited for enough time for everybody to be awake. And why aren't they right. here? And, you know, and then think about being in your house. If somebody banged on your door and you went like, what's that? You know, like nobody's running down to a door going like, Oh, it must be the police. Like, I'll just go and open yeah. that door up. Right. Like that's not how it works. Right. Very hard to have empathy uh, for people in the other thing. But I think that's so interesting. What you mentioned at the beginning of this, walking around where you grew up, how you grew up time on patrol. That's why cops do what they do. And when they're good at it, it's because they've got a lot of empathy from spending time on the street, their back life, uh, you know, all the time that comes in there. And then you just get this 
horrific media narrative acting like, like it's not like you guys are robots and automatons, like you're human beings. This was, as you mentioned, 12 seconds of your life. And it's going right. to define probably the next 50 in so many yeah. ways. It changed your course. Your, your trajectory broke hard after that. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, 180, it was a 180. Everything changed. Kind of, kind of let's talk about how your life changed. If you want to get into any of the details of it, yeah. I think people don't have a, a, a good sense of of what it costs to have just accidentally been the guy doing his job and then find out like, oh, I'm also in the middle of this political football that nobody wants to touch. And every politician is a coward about. Yeah, we were, we were, we were day labor at this point, right? The van came, picked us up, took us, we could do our overtime and we were going to go home. We didn't have, we didn't have anything in the investigation. We didn't know about the case. We didn't need that. Just, Hey, we need bodies. Here you go. Plug and play. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so you go into it thinking, and, and you know, if you say I made a mistake in this, there's a couple that I could point out to go, yeah, I probably could have done things better or different. You know, looking back, would I ever do You're a forced like entry for or technically or something? Yeah, yeah, tactically. So looking back, what I when I talk to guys now, I go, hey guys, why are we making forced entry on a document and money warrant? Right. Why? It's not worth it. There's nothing, even if it's dope, there's nothing in that house worth your life or worth changing your life for your kids getting drugged through this, nothing. And, but we get such tunnel vision because, you know, that's the carrot at the end of the stick. We want the stack on the table. We want the evidence to go, Hey, here's what we did. We used to laugh at the feds all the time because man, we help them on all these dope cases, five dope, five dope, kilo here, do this, do that. And I'm like, where's dope? Oh, we don't care about it. We're just going to wrap them all up. I'm going, you know, as, as, as a narc in a, in a police department, you're pulling your hair out going. My department wants those pictures. They love them. That's what they put on the news. That's what they do at their comstat every week to show what we did. And that's um, how the mayor goes in re-election when they want to run on crime. That's it. Right? Yeah, you don't like the police, but look what we've done. Look what I did. That's right. And uh, that's kind of like I make fun of all the time on these big cases and these press conferences. Say they found a, we'll just say a generic, they found a serial killer they've been looking for, you know, freak the community out. Who do you see on the platform? All the white shirts, right? It's the mayor, the chief, the assistant chiefs, people who didn't lay one finger on this case. Where's the lead detective? Where's the guy who went through the door and put the cuffs on him? Never hear about him because they're up there pounding their chest going, look what I did. Look what I did. They did nothing. And so I always sit back and just laugh and go, oh, that's ridiculous, man. Well, that that actually is a commonality between all law enforcement. I think whether you're a fed or a state or a local, you know, everybody gets that same experience. The people that want to claim the, uh, the credit for all the work that someone else did, 100%. Look at all my minions. Look at all they did. We always talk about writing. There's a document in the bureau. It's called a 954. And it's kind of like the look how great I am thing. It's bullet points of all the great things you did. You write for your next job. And they love, they just love having a 954 bullet point that someone, they didn't do anything on other than sign off on saying, yes, you could either do this thing or like, I approve this interview that you wrote. You already did the interview. You already wrote it up and like, oh yeah, your grammar's correct. And they sign off on it. It's yeah. off. That's a terrible culture, but you're correct on every level. And it's funny is like movies still get it right. You know, they actually get that right. Right. Wow. They did. And, and nobody fixes it. No, no department no. Is like, it sucks. We shouldn't do that. <laughs> That's because who are the departments answer to the mayor? And what do they want that FaceTime? If something good now, when it's a negative thing, it's ghost town. It's your PIO talking about it because <laughs> they don't right. want to get up there and answer those questions. They're like, ah, I don't want to do with it. Yes. Uh, so what was your original question? Cause I got way off track there, man. Let's, yeah. Let's talk about kind of the departure from, from your your life trajectory would have been you were coming up yet a couple of years before you could have probably retired and you probably would have spent some more time in a you know senior role teaching sharing yeah. that culture and then and now you've got like now you're out yeah so i was in these these 
super fast paced units for years, jump out squads, all this stuff, warrants over the course of my career, did about 2000 warrants. So we were busy, man, very proactive units. I was always in and I don't take the glory for that. These, these are the guys working for me. You know what I mean? They're, they're the guys doing all the legwork, all that. I don't want to be that guy on the stage in the white shirt taking credit. I was just holding onto the reins, trying to guide them in the right, trying to keep people from getting indicted, trying to, you know, all these things that you got to look out for now as a, as a boss that as a, as a patrolman or a detective, you're like, why are they bugging me about that? Let's just go, man, head down and go. And then once you got the responsibility going, man, I don't want to go knock on your wife's door telling her that you died because of me. So there's different different elements that, that start building up. And I thought, I'd done this for almost 20 years. Go, go, go. Missed a bunch of kids stuff. Leaving at 10 in the morning, getting home at 2 or 3 in the morning. Never, You couldn't plan stuff you know, because stuff would just pop off. This is a very fluid game, the dope game is. And so when a big load's coming in town last second, uh, babe, sorry, I'm not going to be home. What time are you going to be home? I don't know. You know. And then they're mad. And then, you know, so you're dealing with all these different things. And I thought... Man, I had another kid. I've got three adult kids and a young kid. And I thought, I'm not, I, I don't want to go through all this again. You know, I already screwed up other things in your life by by getting so gung-ho with it. And I thought, I'm going to start coming down on my career because I've also seen where these guys that go hard chargers for 20, 25 years, they retire and they die because that was their identity. Or they they went from 100 miles an hour to nothing. They don't know what to do with their life. Or those guys then turn out to be drug addicts, alcoholics promiscuous gamblers because they're looking for that thrill. They're looking for that, that dopamine hit of, of that adrenaline again, that we get all the time on policing that you're thinking, what am I going to do with my life now? It's boring. I'm cutting grass or, you know, I'm painting a fence. This sucks. And and so you're looking for something to fill that void. And, and I didn't want to be that guy. Yep. Now I ended up going from hundred miles an hour to zero max negative, but, but so I said, I'm going to go to the interdiction unit. So we'd work with FedEx UPS and you talk about the biggest dope dealers in the, in the country. It's our postal, FedEx, UPS, DHL. Those are moving all the dope in the country. Right. Now, it's not intentional. They're not in on it, but they're not against it either because they're making money. And right. so uh, we go out to UPS one night a week. Now, we're the hub for UPS, in, for the air, air UPS in the, in the country. About 3 million packages a day go through that hub. 2 million at night, or yeah, 2 million at night, 1 million during the day. And we would go out there one time a week. That's all they would let us. And we'd pull 20 packages, 20 out of 3 million in one day. And we would fill up a six foot table. I'm talking four or five feet high, just full of dope that, I mean, we could have done that all day, every day. I've got pictures. Would you and just, from, would you be doing this with dogs or what? You just run the dogs past them? No. Well, originally you've got to, you got to be able to have, figure out how to filter them. So you look at source cities, you look at where it's going. Then you look at the packages. Are they done different than if I took it into a store? Are they super taped on all the creases? Um, on you run the the names through different databases, whether it's accurate or or PC clear or whatever, and yep. you say, Oh, that name don't match. Oh, that address don't match, or you pull it up on, on Google Maps, it's a vacant house. So, you know, they're sending it to girlfriends, they're sending it to, to vacant houses and fake names, and you go, All right, pull that one, let's see. Then what you would have to do is you put it out, you'd put your good boxes out that you know are legit boxes that you didn't bring, you just pull them off the line at UPS, you put your one bad one somewhere in the mix. Your handler would come out because it's it's like a blind test. Your dog handler would come out, run, 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 boom, alert on the package. Grab the package off, go do the next one. Just do it, do that for a couple hours. And uh, then it was like Christmas, man. You got to open these things. And I thought in my head, I'm going to go to this unit because what's the worst that's going to happen to me? I'm going to get a paper cut, right? And I'm like, oh, crap. That's, you know, just the way it is. You let your guard down a little bit. I thought the same and, thing uh, when I went to New Mexico. I thought I was getting out of the fire and went right into it. But 
Yeah. But God has plans for us that we don't understand. I feel like, uh, I feel like he does. That you've experienced in your life pretty strongly as well. And, um, tell me about healing too. I just had a curiosity because I'm sure there was some physical, I mean, you know, getting shot is no, it's no cake walk for anybody. Uh, you know, maybe tell people a little bit about it, you know, what it was like, the recovery. You know, Cal, the funny thing is when I go to these conferences and talk and they're mostly narc conferences, what I go to, cause that's, that's what I know. Yep. And so I go to them and they're like, I can't tell you how many people come to me afterwards and go, I didn't even know a cop was shot during that raid because that's always left out of these big stories. Please right. come knocking a door, kill innocent black female in bed. And so I'm like, yeah. Or you hear all graze wound or non-life threatening. Well, it hit my femoral artery and ripped through it. So I've got about a 10 inch scar on the inside of my thigh, aside from the bullet hole where they took a vein out of my leg and replaced the artery with it and uh, about a five, five and a half hour surgery. So the graze wound, you know, took a little while to heal. Um, but the, the only lasting real effects I have are like numbness, like part of my leg, I can't feel because of the nerve damage. Um, but other than that, man, I, I was blessed, you know, just the typical, I screwed my knee up when I stepped off the curb and fell. Um, but you know, I, I've, I've been blessed in that area. Have you seen other people with femoral bleeds before in your work? Had you ever seen that before? I had, yes, they're usually dead, but yes, I saw them and right. the amount of blood. And that was the cue to me. Um, I remember some doctor online called me a liar and I'm thinking, why number one, why would I lie about this? So I remember when I got shot, I returned fire. I stepped behind the door frame and I reached down and put my hand where I've been shot because I was trying to put pressure on it. And instantly I, it was just full of blood. My hand was, and my brain went, I looked at the, the breacher who was stuck on the other side of the door while the gunfire was going on. And I said, dude, I've been hitting my femoral. And, and at that point I went down and she was like, Oh, you're a doctor now. How do you know? And I'm thinking, well, life experience teaches you a lot. You know, I've been on hundreds of shooting cases because we did, especially when we were doing violent crime, because we responded to every single one of them. And you go up and see a guy shot in the leg and it might bleed a little bit, but if it's a through and through, there's not a whole lot of blood, but you'd see those artery bleeds and you're talking pools of blood. And, and that was the case here. And so it was, uh, my mind went like this. I've been shot, return fire. You know, you went straight to training, everything, get behind the door frame, come back around, put two where he dove into the door. And then I went, oh, shoot, it's my femoral. I got to get off my feet, which is logical, but not right where I was standing. <laughs> so no, I actually great. went down right there. Okay. I was still kind of behind the doorway. And that's when Miles kind of stepped over me and was, was putting bullets down range. Yep. And I sit there and for about a half a second or a second, I went, I've really been shot. And I kind of zoned out and I went, what am I doing? Get up. And I stood up and I hobbled out and got back in the parking lot where they could put the, the uh, tourniquet on me. And the tourniquet was on within maybe 40 seconds, uh, 35, 40 seconds. So it was pretty quick. Still a lot uh, of blood out there. Oh, a whole lot. Yeah. I think I can't remember how many liters they put in me, but it was a bunch. Um, so I'm, I'm hobbling out you for one second for people yeah. to have kind of a, a concept of this. So, and you know, I'm a paramedic, I've done this for a while. You, you see bad bleeds and, and it's can be really terrifying. Most people see bleeds on TV and they go, Oh, there's a little bit of a pool of blood. When we're talking about a femoral bleed, I want people to imagine you could unscrew the, the top on a two liter bottle of Coca-Cola and then turn that sucker upside down. It doesn't all fall out immediately like a, like a glass of water, but it's draining out of a big hole, a big artery under pressure in spurts. And you can drain it out and you can lose two liters of blood in 60 seconds or less. Like you can lose it yeah. very, very, very quickly. So if they had it on in 40 seconds, that was a fast, wild 40 seconds for sure. And, and good on because it could have been really, really bad. Like you said, when you see them, they're usually dead. Yeah. Yeah. So it was, it was, uh, 
some heads up work on your team. Yes. And I was glad uh, the guy paid attention in class because you know how it is when you do these these classes over and over and over every two years or a year that you got to recertify. You're like, oh, whatever. You're just trying to get through it so you can go eat lunch or go to the gym or whatever you want to do. Uh, so thank God he was quick and zip and cranking. And I'll tell you what, the, the tourniquet hurt a lot worse than getting shot. Man, when they cranked that thing down and cranked and cranked, it felt like my leg was going to explode. It was on for like 42 minutes. So um, it was no fun. I don't want that again. Um, I don't want to get shot either, but I definitely don't want to tourniquet on me. Isn't that something? So it, Everybody yeah, says it's crazy. Thing, and guys will beg to have it off. You knew better than to, to mess with it or touch it. You knew that was keeping you alive. The funny thing was when I went to University Hospital, University of Louisville, it's, a, it's the best trauma center in the state. So if you get shot, you want to go there. But it's also a training hospital. So I remember being on my back, looking over my shoulder, and I had the older doctor here, the surgeon, the younger guy here who must have kind of been in training or, you know, far less smart enough. He's a surgeon, but not the experience. And he went to take the it's tourniquet resident. off. Yes. He went to take the tourniquet off. Well, he was trying to push down and, and release it. Well, it's so tight. You're not releasing that thing. And the, the other doctor let him do it for about three or four pushes. And I'm going, oh, my God. You know, what are you? You know, it's just hurting. He's pushing down on my thigh. And the, the older doctor looked at him and went, why don't you use your scissors you got right there? I was like, yeah, use your scissors, idiot. You know, he's not an idiot. But in my mind, I'm thinking, my goodness, man, why are you doing this? So uh, a lot of weird stuff goes through your head, too, when you get shot. Stupid stuff. You know, it just doesn't make sense. And it's so quick. The incidents, like, blink of an eye fast, but your brain slows down so much. You think a bunch of stuff in that really short period of time that you're like, how did I have time to even think that or register that for how yep. quick everything was? It, it makes no sense. No, temporal distortion is is very common. I think the way the body deals with this sort of stuff is kind of wild. So you got shot. You had to go and do some rehab rehabilitation. Obviously, they did surgery on you for a while. That didn't heal overnight by any means. Um, what did they they put you on light duty right away? I assume you got some uh, medical time off to be able to be you know at least before you went back in and started making trouble again. Yeah. So the protocol is always you know take your gun badge. You're on uh, administrative suspension. You get paid. Um, this one, uh, you know, you paid the workman's comp, so it's, it's not the same, but it's fine. And, um, I did that and I was ready to come back, man. I got cleared probably two, two and a half months later. Cause man, I, I rehabbed hard. This was right during COVID. So Friday, March 13th was the same day Trump came in and kind of shut everything down. And so our governor was on TV every day, the mayor, the president, and it was, you know how it was, it just encapsulated everything. And so part of me said, man, this is bad. You got a white cop shot an unarmed black female. It's going to be bad. But then you didn't hear much about it because it's all you heard was COVID, 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 COVID. Everybody's freaked out over it. So I thought, well, good. Maybe we'll kind of scoot, you know, escape this. We'll, we'll get a, we'll get around. It. I think we would have had it not been for Ben Crump coming on board. Yep. Um, and, and I originally think that was our mayor's and chief's response because they that's how they were. You know, they, they didn't were not want to get involved either. I got over No, that. no, they, they were, them. they've never been transparent. This, yeah. this mayor gets on there and talks about transparency. He's the worst, man. He's he's just a criminal and a crook. And um, and so when all this went down, I thought, good, I'm good. Well, then, then it blew up. But uh, yeah, it's, it's just weird how all these things go through your head. Well, that happens. And then I got to imagine the the fact that we had those additional cases that you mentioned, the uh, oh, Curry yeah. and the George Floyd. And, and I think in many ways in medicine, we talk about potentiation. It's a drug that makes another drug stronger just by its presence. And obviously those brought even more scrutiny. They were totally unrelated events, very, very different circumstances, almost not 
related at all. I mean, for different departments, uh, different yeah. cultures, different geography, different circumstances, everything about them, but everybody boiled it down to this simple, awful, you know, black on white issue, which is, I think, white the supremacy. And here's the thing that's so crazy. And you tell me if this is, you know, crazy to you too, but, um, I don't, you know, I, I'm sure you had black cops on your force that were your buddies, like that you would trust with your life. And I have the same thing with both military and law enforcement. I, it's, it's so one weird. was on scene with me there that night. He was in my wedding. Right. You know, he trained me. He was on my FTOs. And I mean, we're still good friends. He called me today. And I'm thinking, my God, my son-in-law's black. Can anybody just do a little bit of research before they run their mouth? But nobody does that. You know, yeah, none of it matters. What's going to give me the clicks? What's going to give me whatever? It's it's pathetic. And they don't have any, uh, they don't have any shame in it because there's no, there's no consequence for saying things. That right. Affect. It doesn't affect them. And, yeah. and there's no consequence. Like being a police officer or being a, a federal agent, you are put on the, the scope of a public figure because you're a public official, which is stupid. I don't make public figure money. I'm not out there in the media, in the news. My fate, nobody knows who I, nobody knew who I was. Right. You know, I'm just a cop doing his thing, going home to his family. That's it. It's all I wanted to do. I don't want to be here. I don't want to be talking to you. I don't want to be on stage. I never want any of that. Right. And so um, the defamation rules are pathetic. The Supreme Court, for some reason, years back, decided we as police officers or agents are held to a higher standard. Therefore, you can defame us and we can't sue. You can say all these things, but malice is different, but it's almost impossible to prove malice. You got to show that uh, they knew what they said was a lie and they did it with the intent to hurt you. It's hard to prove people's intent. And it's got to have both of those factors. And uh, so because, you know, I, I had an attorney. I'm like, dude, what about this part? Oprah said all this crap. Uh, Beyonce, J-Lo, all these people, anybody you can imagine that had juice, that had millions and millions of followers were posting all these lies, saying all these things were racist, were murderers, you know, were liars, were dirty cops, all these things. I'm sitting back going, how can they get away with it? And it was like, nothing you can do because Beyonce will say she heard it from Oprah, who says she heard it from ABC, who says they heard it from USA Today, who's everybody's going to pass the buck. And how can you prove who knows what? And right. so and uh, what they it meant was, by it, it's frustrating. I got to imagine yeah. all that stuff is is very it's it's the difference. Um, You know, your situation fell on you. I sort of knew mine was coming my way, obviously not related other than we both got thrust into a public space. I sort of chose my battleground. I know you didn't have that choice. Um, talking about the media, what was the reception like initially? And then I feel like you got at some point people stopped talking to you because I know your name fell away. And that's why I was actually really excited to connect with you. I was like, man, this guy's, this is a really interesting dude. Like, I can't believe I don't hear his name more often. So kind of give us, so people understand what happens when you step into the limelight and you were not ready for it. So local media was always negative. All right. We had, we have, I'll say two reporters. Um, but one's like a troubleshooter reporter who is pro-police. And so the rest of reporters don't like her because she actually tells the truth. But she calls cops out, too. I mean, she'll release stories about Should be. cops doing bad things. Yeah, she's kind of down the middle, you know. And then you got another guy who quietly – he doesn't push it the same because he kind of wants to keep his job. A nice guy, though. You know, never said disparaging stuff. Um, national level, horrible. Even Fox News said – things that were totally false, some of their people. Um, and we reached out to him. My attorney did and said, hey, this ain't the truth. Sent them the clips, all these different clips saying, this is false. Can you retract it? They said, go pound sand. You know, yeah. this is what we do. And uh, from that moment on, I've never talked to anybody on Fox. 
None of those. So when you get to national media, what you're talking about, whether it be influencers or national media, you've got, you know, you've got different levels. You got the guys who are starting out who will take anybody, you know, oh, you're breathing. You had a story. Will you come on my podcast? Great. I didn't care because got to start somewhere. Right. And uh, some of these guys are going to be great someday, but I could tell by talking to them, like, oh, this guy's got it. You know, and then other guys are like, eh, I'm not sure about him, but I'm, I'm grateful, <laughs> but I'm grateful to those. So I, I have a lot of experiences <laughs> having the same thoughts. Yeah. So I'm grateful to those guys because they didn't let the politics get in the way. And then you had some mid-level people that would have me on. Then, you know, some big people like uh, Claire Hot Podcast or Tim Cast or uh, Megan Kelly, Charlie Kirk, you know, Ben Shapiro, because they did the book, uh, Daily Wire did. So I had those. But then you had another element of conservative commentators that Daily Wire thought for sure was on board. These guys, we've got you with this, this, this. They laid out all these big people. And then I'm like, when are we doing this? Ah, well, let's get back to you. Oh, I don't know. And then there, finally, somebody from their place quit. And I reached out to them when they quit and let, said, look, I don't want to get you in trouble. I'm not going to use your name. Tell me the real story behind this. What happened to so-and-so and so-and-so? And they told me the truth. And it's like, no, I don't want to do it. I'll, I don't push books on my podcast or my show. Total lie. This person pushes books every single episode of their show. Uh, but what it boiled down to is nobody that was related to Fox in any way would touch it. Nobody. And some of them I'm shocked because they act like big police supporters. And I'm going, wait a minute. I thought we were about the truth and about, you know, protecting people who protect us. What happened to that? Um, so that was disappointing. Now, naturally, the the, the left media ain't going to touch it, now, especially once you show them facts and total radio silence. Um, so it, it's been frustrating. It's been an uphill battle the entire time. Um, you know, the, when my book was originally first supposed to come out, that got canceled because Simon and Schuster said, no, nope, we're not touching it. They were good on it until they got blowback. And, and so they canceled it. And so that put us back like eight months, which hurt a lot because when something's ready to go and it's in the heat of the moment and everybody's excited about it, wants to hear it. And then it gets pulled out from under you. Then eight months later, there's been uh, the day that it released or the day that they were pushing it. Yeah. The Russian Ukraine war started. So this was back. Nobody wanted to touch it. It was that week that everything blew up. And so then all of a sudden we had people that we were supposed to be on going, ah, maybe next week, maybe next week, maybe next week. Um, so, uh, you know, I don't want to say bad luck because everything happens for a reason. I'm a firm believer in that. And, and I'll be in the place I'm supposed to be eventually. Um, but it's been tough. You know, it's been like, man, it's a little disheartening, to be honest. Yeah, it's got to be. I mean, I always tell people that the the feeling of betrayal is when you have a certain amount of trust, whether it be in an institution or in the country or, or just even people's goodwill and sentiment. and then you experience something that is alternate to what you sort of expected. The outcome is not what you you predicted. Um, you know, maybe kind of talk about, about how that felt when you realized that people didn't uh, have your back the way that you kind of expected. It had to be some in the department as well that didn't go the way you expected. Man, I, I tell people all the time, getting shot sucks. Being betrayed by your department city, 10 times worse because sure. it's a different hurt. It's a different... And it's a blind side. I expected on this job I could get shot or killed or hurt or whatever. I never expected the people that are asked that train me, give me the tools, tell me to go do it. I go do what they ask. Then when you do it and things go sideways, they go, not our call. I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Oh, bad policing. Yeah, not I'm going, our guy. I'm going, wait a minute. Hold up, man. I have, number one, I've helped some of you guys along the way who should have probably been fired, mm -hmm. you know. You, you, you change people's courses and help them out. So later on, you think, okay, well, it'll help me out. Heck no, it didn't happen. Um, I talked to the chief the second day or 
yeah, the second dad was in the hospital, he came in and here's the cowardly part on his part. And I probably shouldn't have done it. I advise against other people doing it, but I knew when I woke up from surgery, it was weird. It was like a, a total HD recording of that night. I remembered everything. You know, they say, wait three days to talk or, you know, 72 hours, 48 hours for your brain to kind of catch up. I remembered everything except for having a baseball hat on. I forgot about that because uh, I didn't have one on originally. It started raining. And I threw one on after I got soaking wet, changing my car out. Mm-hmm. Um, so then when I saw the crime scene photos, I saw it sitting there and went, oh, my hat. I totally forgot I had that. But everything else was just, I mean, just down the line. So when he came in, I was like, chief, let me tell you what happened. And I talked to him for like two hours, told him details of everything that night. And this is the second day it happened. So then when everything came out, he sat on his on his rear end and wouldn't talk, wouldn't tell any of it. And uh, so so that stuff was like, man, that's just another dagger. You know, it's like the shots just kept coming and, and there's only so much you can defend and and you're fighting off or you're returning fire and it just keeps coming. The barrage is over and over. And so I came to a point where I had to make a decision. Am I going to depend on other people to fight for me or I'm just going to fight for myself? And I said, screw it. Ain't nobody else here. I'm doing it. I'm going to start talking. They were against it. And I knew I would get fired if I did it, but I was like, I'm going to do it anyway. So when I came back on the job, first day I got back, I walked in and I'd already talked at this point. I'd already talked to Strahan in 2020 and all of them, which was another debacle. Um, Cause we talked for three, three and a half hours straight, nonstop, no breaks, no anything. He and I just back and forth, just like you and I are doing. Yep. And they use like three minutes of it. And it was that they twisted it and turned it. And I'm like, if I ever do a national liberal show again, it'll have to be live or I'm not doing it. Or, or you so, get recording as well. It's part of the deal. Yeah. Yeah. But I still want it live. If I screw up, it's on me. You know, it's my fault. If I look like an idiot, I'm the idiot. But don't make me look like one with your editing. That sucks. Yeah, that's terrible. Um, so, that's um, really terrible. yeah. So when I came back to work, I walked in and my boss said, hey, come to my office. I walked in and um, he slid a paper across the desk. I picked it up and read it. And it was an involuntary transfer to the property room, which is in the basement. And I'm like, I didn't violate policy. I didn't commit a crime. Why am I getting punished? I took a bullet for this place. Why am I getting punished? My life's already been drugged through hell. Why are you, why are you doing this now? And he's like, man, it ain't on me. I don't have any say in it. It's the chief. And, and this is the same chief that came from Atlanta and screwed that entire thing up with the Rashad Brooks case, fired those guys. They all got their jobs back because she's an idiot. I mean, a total idiot. And when she came in her very first press conference, she got up and said, man, Brianna was just asleep in her bed and they came in and killed her and they didn't have to do that. Uh, this is just a case of white reckoning. They would never go to the white end of town and do this. And I'm sitting there going, are you kidding me? You're my chief. I'm still working for you. And you saying this, you're calling me a racist. I mean, if when you say this is part of white reckoning, that's kind of like saying somebody's a racist. And so I requested meetings with her. She kept denying them. So I was like, forget this. So once they transferred me, I took the paper, I slid it back and said, I'll get back with you. I'm taking vacation time. And I left. I never came back because I knew the writing was on the wall. They were looking for any reason. Mayor had already been on TV saying he wishes he could fire us, but we were protected under Kentucky state law. Um, so I knew the writing was on the wall. And I said, I can either be in control and do it my way and start getting the voice out and getting the word out because they're not going to do it ever. You know, you kept hold of that little glimpse, that little bit of hope going, well, maybe next week, maybe after the AG's decision, they'll put the truth out. But to this day, they've never put out that we weren't at the wrong apartment, that she did have a warrant for her place, that she wasn't in bed, all these things. They've never countered one 
topic. So that, that's been the worst part of this whole thing. Um, not the worst, second worst. Uh, the, the worst was the the hit taken out on us. And if you want to talk about that, we can talk about it now or we can wait till later. Let's do it. Let's get right there. I, that was my, right, next, that was my next route. So uh, luckily you had all this stuff going down. You're, you're in a bad spot with your department. That happens. We understand there's local politics at play, but at least the feds can step in and do the right thing the right way, except that they can't because they're scumbags. And that's how you and I actually met kind of discussed yes. this. And I went like, what a freaking wild story. So uh, folks, if you haven't, uh, if you've been on kind of autopilot and just kind of listening to the two guys jamming, tune in right now because this is where, for me, my eyes got real big. This is going to be probably somewhat shocking to to uh, Phil as well. So, give us the background and then tell me how you came to know this information that there was a hit taken out on you and your family and the good right. work that was done to stop it. Yeah, yeah. So at the end of April, <clears throat> I was out of town actually. My family was still in town. I got this call from my boss that said, hey, where you at? I'm like, I'm like 2,000 miles away. I think it was in uh, Oregon and driving back. And she was like, um, "Our one of our informants came in and and, and showed us some text. And uh, apparently they're talking about taking a hit out on you. Your name was mentioned specifically, all this stuff. And I said, who's they? And I knew that, sorry, I knew that Brianna Taylor's mom was in a motorcycle club. She's in a black motorcycle club called No Haters. They ride with... Uh, a group called straight riders and they're tied into sin city which is a national motorcycle gang are these so uh, apparently these are omgs or these are just clubs no these are these are real gangs these okay. guys are they're, love, they're selling dope moving drugs are uh, selling guns uh very violent they're known for that in the city okay. and so i was like well, crap there's nothing i can do and that help was feeling is the worst thing in the world so they went and got my wife and kid took them somewhere else uh, they stayed there till I got back. But I don't know about you with dealing with informants, but you kind of take like the 10% rule. If they say there's a pound, it might be an ounce. You know, it's one of those things where they always exaggerate a little bit to try to get the mo more money or to get you to believe them or whatever. So I thought, well, maybe it's just street talk, you know, because people talk all the time. I'm, I'm kind of, after all these years, callous to people saying stupid stuff like, oh, when I get out, I'm going to kill your family or stuff like that. You know, you kind of like, yeah, whatever. You jar back and forth with them. Um, I knew this case was different, but I still had that hope or that maybe that naivety that well, this is just talk, talk on the street. And so Brianna Taylor's mom wasn't only part of this club. She is dated the vice president of this club. Okay. So no big deal. This kind of passed it died down. Then I'm in my garage on a Sunday night and it was May 31st. So I don't know if that led into Monday morning or, or, or that night. I can't remember. I was in my garage working. I get a phone call from uh, a task force officer with the FBI. He was part of the joint terrorism task force. He used to work for me. I'm the one that gave, you know, did the back help with the background to say, Oh yeah, this guy's a good guy, all that stuff, all the BS they go through for that. And so he called me, he said, man, what are you doing? I said, I'm just cleaning my garage. We just moved to this house. Uh, we'd only been there five weeks. And he said, um, I don't know how to tell you this, but you've got a hit taken out on you. You need to get your family and, and y'all need to go somewhere. Uh, the FBI told me to call you and tell you you need to get out of town. I was like, holy crap. You know, it took a minute to register because I'm thinking, well, this is movie stuff. You know, this this don't really happen. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was like, man, what do I do? So I called my boss and was like, hey, uh, I just got this call. They said they got a hit out on me. The FBI is telling me to get out of town. Well, what am I supposed to do with this? Because there's no contingency plan for this. And 
And she's like, uh, let me call you back. She called downtown. They called back and said, um, they'll put you up in the Galt house downtown because they get special rates there. Well, this was March, May 31st. The riot started May 27th. Our downtown was a shit show at this point. We'd already had seven people shot right there where this hotel's at. And they want to put me there because they get a discount. I was like, oh, no thanks. I'm good. That sounds like So I started calling. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. So I, I called around. I got. A, I found a place a couple hours from our house. Uh, my mom and dad, my adult kids, their kids, my sister and her husband, they all went with us. So we'd all been doxxed at this point. I mean, it, the the onslaught of people on social media and calling my personal cell phone, all this stuff. They bumped into my uh, work email and sent threats. I mean, it was just everywhere. And it was like overnight. It was really weird because it had been fairly quiet. Got a few little stupid things. But then overnight, all of us got attacked. And, you know, like, holy crap, this was an organized event that took place. Somebody got all the info and sent it out. So we go, we're down there and I talked to him. His name's Scott. And I said, Scott, look, don't tell me anything that would jeopardize the, the integrity of this case. If it's important to my family for their safety, please let me know. Other than that, don't give me details because I don't want it coming up later and ruining this thing. He was like, fine, I wouldn't anyway, you know, because he's got confidentiality stuff. So about four days later, he calls me and he goes, man, something's funny. Something's just off. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He said, the bosses have come in a couple of times while we're in here, you know, writing cell phone warrants, doing all these things. They're popping in, asking questions and talking. And they never do this. You know, these are the bosses. And I'm like, and this is over at the bureau. Yeah, this is the FBI. Yeah. And I'm like, well, okay, it's. Maybe because it's a nationwide case, you know, maybe it's just different. You know, who knows? We're, this is new to everybody. Maybe they're just curious. A couple of days later, he calls me back and goes, well, I just got kicked off the floor. My, my key card revoked. And I was like, what for? He said, well, one of the bosses came in and started talking about, well, uh, the optics look bad going after a national victim's mother. I'm like, optics? Who gives a crap about optics when they're, when they're targeting three police officers and their families? What's that matter? We're on the same team, right? That's what I thought, because when when the FBI got on board, I thought, well, good. You know, the nation's best law enforcement agency, the, the most money, the intelligence, the resources. Good. I'm glad they're here. Oh, Look man. Watching what our podcast. They're not thinking that. So that's the upside. No, what a mistake, man. So and even being in this world for 20 years, I still thought that, you know, even though I didn't like them on half the stuff, I knew they were good at their job. So I thought at least they'll follow through with this. That's what I thought. I would think. And so I said. They kicked you off the floor. He said, yeah, he'd been working there for five years at this point, you know, embedded with these guys. And now all of a sudden, nope, you're not allowed to go up there, go sit in the corner, you're in timeout. And so I thought, man, this is crazy. A couple of days later, he calls me back and goes, um, dude, they've closed the case. They've shut it down. They've locked it up. They've locked it out of the system where even the, the guys working the case can't do it. And those guys are pissed off. They're mad, right? They're ticked off. The agents are. These, these are some good guys. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking this ain't right, right? You're joking me. Something's off because you're an agent. So you can speak to this much better than I can, but all the ones I worked with them, if they opened a case, they didn't shut it because it was harder to reopen it than it was to open it in the first place. That's what we were told. That's why they said they never shut cases. They would hold on to them, maybe stick them in a, I don't know what the word is for it, but maybe like over here where they're not using it or they're not attacking it, but it's still there. So they could reach in and pull it out anytime they wanted to work it. And I thought, well, that's crazy, man. Why would they shut this case down? Well, I had been talking to a, a retired FBI undercover guy who did it for like 30 years. Great reputation. 
His wife was an agent also. She was an IT person. Um, and I got to know him through this just over a phone call. I've still never met him in person. He was a good friend of a buddy of mine. He, used, he was an FTO who was also an undercover agent for the FBI. And so they knew each other through that realm. And I was talking to him one day and he said, hey, uh, just want to give you a heads up. Be careful. Amy Hess, who was our public safety uh, administrator over police, fire and EMS. She had retired in 2019 from the bureau. She was the highest ranking female um, official ever in the FBI. She was appointed by James Comey in D.C. and, and one of the branches up there, some some IT or computer type uh, fraud department. And um, he said, you got to be careful with her. I can see Phil, Phil's looking her up right now. Amy Comey. Look her. I mean, uh, yeah. Amy Hess. Right? Yeah. Amy Hess. Um, and uh, and so I'm thinking, well, that's weird. And he said, he said, here's the problem. She's best friends with the sack Brown in Louisville. Mm-hmm. They talk every day. They go to lunch a lot. And they're both BLM sympathizers. They're liberal. Just be careful. So I stuck at my brain. Amy Hess had come to work for our mayor in, in November of 2019. And probably five, six years earlier, we had a big explorer scandal, our police explorer program. Some of the cops were grooming these kids, diddling them, doing whatever. And we're talking 14, 15 year olds. And when it was brought to the, the chief and to the mayor, they brushed it under the rug. It didn't get known. They didn't even fire these guys right away. They let them on the street with still their badge and gun. Yeah, big conspiracy. And so um, so those two kind of had each other by the gonads. You know, you know, I know, you know, I know. We can't mm-hmm. talk about this now because later it was revealed. Not that they knew ahead of time, but they had sent one of the majors who was over this program to talk to one of the parents to try to get them not to press charges against this cop. I'm like, I would have told him to go F off and go probably shot that cop if he did it with my kid. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah. it's you cross the line that you don't come back from. That's right. And the fact that these two were covering it up and not for whatever the reason, for the black eye, the agency, whatever. But that's a huge problem because we're not transparent. And so one of the things before David James and I got into this argument and and we're no longer friends and don't talk after I called him out was this is, again, the, the city council president. When I told him about Amy Hess's involvement in this, he said, oh, my gosh, that makes sense now. He said, ever since she's come to town, we used to have open dialogue with the FBI about this case, about the Explorer case. As soon as she got to town, they would no longer talk to us about it. It was cut off because it was going to make the mayor look bad. She worked for the mayor. He's progressive. She's liberal. Kind of makes sense. So I'm thinking, man, is this related to my case? Why did they shut it down? Because the agents didn't want to. You know, what's the reasoning behind it? You've got a criminal element a person who's in a, a club that commits all kinds of violent felonies, taking hits out on cops. Why would you not follow up on that? Yeah, that's a no-brainer, right? That's a slam dunk of of good things to be done. Yes. Nobody would not be behind that. Right. Um, because you can have two things at once. You can investigate me for a crime, but then protect me as a victim at the same time. You know, it, it happens all the, all the time. time. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Right. right? I and mean, so, how many times have you had to burn a case where you have to go after and let someone know, like, look, we were going to probably take you down in the next month, but someone's going to try to kill you tonight. And we got yeah. to stop that because that's our job. Yep. That's it's how it happened goes. plenty of times. Of course. And so, and so all of a sudden that like the alarm bells went off in my head and I went, Oh my goodness, it's hiding in plain sight. If Amy Hess is best friends with this sack in Louisville and all of a sudden this case got shut down because of it. Now this case got shut down since she's been here. Who's the common denominator? It's Amy Hess. Mm-hmm. And so, 
The funny thing is I put this in my book. I put this out on anywhere I talk. Not one time has anybody called me and said, hey, dude, you need to shut that down. It's not true. Not one time. And, that's and I'm thinking if it were true, if it weren't true, somebody will reach out and go, cut it out. Enough. Knock it off. But it hadn't happened. That's one and of those so, things that you, you would think would be a clue, right? I mean, it's not like you yes. did investigations for 20 years and uh, you don't know what you're talking about here. That, yeah. that's when you want to hear the kicker, here. Kyle? I do. Here's the kicker. Guess where Brown's at now? Uh, NDC and Amy Hess's old unit. So he got promoted after this. Of course he did. I don't I don't know. I think it's called a clue. I'm not really sure. Yeah, uh, but it's we, definitely a puzzle we, piece. It's, it's clearly um, one of those two things. <laughs> yeah. Seems to fit right in there. So listen, so that was it was disappointing, man. It what was, was his name. Was what's his name? Brown. What's Brown's first name? Do you remember? Um, I'd have to look it up. Just put put the the sack in Louisville in twenty twenty or twenty nineteen. He'll come up. James Brown. I think it's James Brown. That's too good of a name to be James Brown. Robert, Robert Brown. Brown. Okay, I knew it was Brown. I couldn't remember common first name, but yeah. Where do you promote to, uh, Phil? Uh, trying to figure that out here. That's, we're not seeing them on the org chart. That's all right. We'll look. We'll look. It's not. It's not super relevant. But I'm always interested when someone screws up and moves up. That's a pretty standard. Pretty standard. Uh, AD of operations technology. Very interesting. Wait, he's. Yeah, at, I knew she was some kind of technology OTD? in DC. He's at OTD. That's what it looks like. Wow, that's a good gig. Well, wait, so, that happened. You get rewarded well. That happened in 2021. So he's probably retired by now. Or he's moved, yeah, moved beyond the next step. Amy has retired right after I brought all this stuff up. She quit. Ain't that something? Moved on. Yeah. So operational technology division is where we create all the cool technologies, all the spy stuff, all the really like high speed. All the stuff they can watch me with. Awesome. (laughs) Correct. Yeah, sure. 100%. That's, uh, I've been over there a couple of times. They have a really neat facility. They've got all these cool, you know, tech nerds building neat stuff. They're doing prototypes for whatever goes on for the bureau stuff. And a lot of it's a big budget. You know, they're out there touching cell phone towers and, you know, they, they, they do cool work and some of it's great for criminal work and some of it's great for surveillance. They could have used it great in this case for us. Why didn't they? No, that's, that's yeah, not. I mean, because the frustrating part, the frustrating part is now her mom, before she was just a little local gangster type bike crew, whatever. Right. Now she got 12 million from our city. She got 8 million from GoFundMe. So now she's got $20 million to play with. That $50,000 hit is now suddenly nothing. You know what I'm saying? And I nobody's no following this money. That much money. She must have given what? Oh, yeah. Probably, it was a $12 million settlement with the city. She must have given two thirds of that to Crump, right? That's the assumption. Probably only, 30, 30, 35 or 40%, probably. Minimum. Yeah, but maybe more yeah. depending on the contingencies. Who knows? He, he probably can demand whatever he wants. Either way. She got big. And GoFundMe is a, a pull. You don't pay taxes on that because it's a, a, it's a gift, gift sending. Yeah. Right. So that's easy. So, so she at least got $10 million plus dollars. What a deal. Yeah. What a crazy thing. And, and how much did she have to do with her daughter's life before this? Anything? Very little. So her dad has been in prison her whole life. Her grandma raised her. When her grandma died, her and her mom, I think, kind of reunited there near the end. Um, so, yeah. You know, I I don't want to downgrade the loss or somebody's pain or hurt but at the same time you're going on the this national tour talking about you know your whole life was ripped from you and all this stuff when i think drugs and motorcycles and dudes were a lot more important to you than your daughter her whole life so now all of a sudden 
Also, when someone takes a hit out on you and says that they want to put money to come after your family, I think they sort of forfeit uh, your requirement to be nice to them. That's just my personal feeling. I don't know. Right. No one's taking a hit out on me. People actually promised me that I would have death threats when I came out publicly, and it hasn't happened yet. Uh, luckily for them, That's I guess. Good. I, I figure that uh, you guys have a contingency plan that you've got some safety mechanisms built into your head and how to handle business. And yes, and I know you maintain your fitness, which is the thing that so many people let go, especially cops when they get out. They got two things, right? They either become a retarded and, and they start a CrossFit gym, which I'm not mad at them for that, <laughs> or they go the other way and they just get sloppy and weak. And then, uh, you know, right. all the sharpness goes away and, and you haven't let that go. And I'm, no. I see that person too. It's, uh, what a what a wild life to have basically spent twenty plus years in in and actually serving the public and trying to do things that are the right thing, you know, keeping dope off the street, whatever it may be, you know, being a compassionate individual, which people should be able to take away from the fact that you, you police with empathy, you know, reluctant uh, supervisor, and then find out that your own federal government that you pay taxes into, you know, we don't pay a ton of taxes, I'm sure, end of the day, because it's it's a percentage, but it's not like we're paying like what the millionaires pay. And yet, you'd still think that the That's not what Joe Biden tells us. Come on, <laughs> we're paying all of it. They pay less than us. What are you talking it's, about? It's so funny. People have no idea how to do math, and right? they believe it. People believe it's the problem, not that he says it. It's the fact so many million people believe that crap. And you're going, oh my gosh, how, how stupid is our country? I mean, literally, how stupid is our country? We're pretty dumb. We're not a serious nation at this point. We're really not. No. We don't have serious people. They don't have serious solutions. They don't have serious ideas. Uh, my favorite is this, and and you probably have gotten this. Maybe not. I don't know. Maybe this is unique to our situation. I had a lady reach out to me on one of these social media platforms. She said something really obnoxious and dumb. And I just straightened her right out. I just said, no, that's not the case. You're like, you're foolish. you know. And she wrote back and she said, how dare you? I've supported you since the beginning. And it's like, supported me with what? What are you talking your about? Criticism? Yeah. yeah like, uh, did, did you send me a check? Did I miss that? Yeah, because I had a, a year <laughs> without a paycheck. And now there's some, been some very generous people that have been funding my buddy. And I'm really grateful for the gifts and go we had and all that. But, you know, who are you? And like, why, why are you, how dare you? How, how, how do you, how dare you say something so silly? And then so everybody's oh, sorry, an expert on your situation, except you. Right. I mean, that's the other funny thing. Right. You find. Everybody knows the deal. They all want to tell you what your story is. I just like, yeah. To yeah, it's unreal. I mean, I still get DMS all the time, you know, Oh, we should have been shot in the head and died. Oh, you know, your kids are dead, dead next. We're going to kill them. All this stuff, just constant nonstop barrage of stuff. And at some point you do get kind of numb to it and you're like, oh, whatever, just stupid. You know, you just move on. Um, and, I mean, you look for real threats. I'll still look at their profile and go, okay, who is this guy? Is this somebody to worry about or not? I don't know. He's just some crackhead somewhere. Um, but yeah. So, uh, so with Amy Hess, with that thing, once he got promoted and I put it out, I thought, okay, I'm going to roll the dice here because the department's sitting on it. The bureau's sitting on it. The news won't cover it. So I've got to say something. You know, it was a strategic move thinking, okay, it might piss her off, but she's already got a hit on me anyway. What's that matter? At least this will put the spotlight on her. So if something does happen to me or somebody else, they know where to go. Yeah. And then they can see who's held accountable for not doing their job uh, for political reasons. And I remember I called Rand Paul's office, got the runaround, called Mitch McConnell's office, talked to them, got the runaround. Oh, we we don't we don't get involved in investigations. Our Mitch McConnell does. And I'm like, you're such a liar. Oh, my God. I mean, these guys lie as easy as they breathe, all of them. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's unreal how bad it is. Makes you kind of want to run for office just so somebody can have some little integrity in there and tell people where to go. But if you do, I'll come speak on your behalf. There you go. 100%. It's, it's crazy. Uh, I, that's actually where I wanted to go with this. 
your experience with politicians, I know it's very similar. Without even knowing, I know it's similar to mine because of what you just said there. We have all this expectation that these people are elected and that they're supposed to be reaching it, you know, helping out on their constituents. And and Mitch McConnell was your senator, right? Is that yeah, yeah. No, no time, no interest, no help. No. Anybody, anybody step up that you didn't expect that did anything great that we couldn't go like, at least there's that shining light or did everybody just drop the ball? Everybody. I had one person, Brandon Tatum. He's okay. the only one that had any, any following, any juice, any, anything that stuck his neck out and said, mm, something's off here. This ain't, this story's not right. And so he was actually putting stuff out before I knew him. And, and I remember I was, I was sitting in bed and this is before the, before the hit came out or before we knew about it. And I'm sitting in bed and somebody sent me a link to one of his YouTube videos and he had followers then, but I mean, I think he had like 600,000 or 700,000. He still had a lot of followers at that point. And um, I went, Holy crap. This is the first positive thing I've seen in two months. Everything else has been lies, negative BS, you know, go get the cops, hang them up by their, by their ankles type thing. And so I was like, well, what I got to lose? I emailed him. I got on his website and emailed him. He called me. So we got talking. I told him the story. Um, and dude, he was just been on board and, and he was a shot in the arm that, that we needed, um, that just gave you a little bit of hope so you could keep your head above water. Because at that point, when everybody's stepping on you, I mean, it's just hard to, you know, you think you're resilient and got a lot of resolve, but at some point you're going, Oh man, this is heavy, dude. How much, how much more can I take of, of these, these hits? Because it's tough. Um, and so going back to the hit, the thing that made it where they said, where the FBI originally came in, I let this part out. So we had the one guy that worked for Metro government as a CI, given his handler, the original information. Right. Well, now we've got a informant that's embedded into her motorcycle club, already purchasing guns for the ATF on an OSADEF case, who was involved in the meeting when Sin City came down from from Chicago. She described the vehicles they were in. She told us the entire conversation, not me. She told her agent, the handler. She told the FBI when they, when her handler got this and brought her, brought it to the FBI said, Hey, uh, we got a problem here. This person's up. She didn't know about the other threat. These two informers don't know each other, two different worlds. Yep. And so the FBI comes in and, and one of the things they said was, uh, First, they sit down and did the whole normal FBI thing. Okay, you no longer work for uh, your handler. You work for us. And this informant went, fuck, I do. I'm not working. I trust this person. I've been with this person for years. Why would I go? To, why can't we just work through this? And they're like, no, no, no. If you want to do this, you got to work through us. Like, she's doing us a favor. Why are you being a bully? You know, straight bully moves. And when she, when she bucked them on that, they said, well, you need to take a lie detector to make sure so we know you're not lying. Yeah. I'm like, she's already a reliable informant working in OSADEF case for the federal government purchasing guns. Right. Why does she have to take a lot? Of, I've never heard of that ever. So and, for people uh, to understand the way the Bureau kind of vets sources, it's based on strength of information. It's about the the amount of time that they've been doing the uh, the reporting. It's about how many cases have been built on it. Have they been reliable in the past? And they always give these monikers whenever they take intelligence in. So it'll say, you know, a, uh, uh, an informant that's known to us or, a, you know, a confidential human source that's known to us that has reported, you know, significant information that has been reliable, blah, 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 blah. So they give all their bona fides. The ATF would have had the same sort of experience. They could have at least just laid that out. Like, heck, here's the cases we built off at. These are the busts we've done. You know, this is this is the validation we have. And then you also have 
confirmation from a secondary source. That's the real kicker. Right. It's like you don't yeah. you don't need that. You already know because right. they're reporting something that somebody else already did that was unrelated. Gross. Yeah. So it was just it, it was just their excuse to try to say she wasn't reliable. Is all it was. You know, they tried to use all these different methods to get her to push back on them. So they go, oh, we're not using you. Right. Um, and so this that was their excuse at the end. Said so she's unreliable. However, okay. from what I've dealt with, when the feds make a, an informant unreliable, they get dropped from the system, correct? And they're no longer allowed to be used? Maybe not. That's the experiences eight. we've had in the past. Okay. I don't know if that, I don't and, know if, if the bureau, <clears throat> the other thing. I mean, there's been examples of people that were reporting to multiple agencies and getting paid by all of them, but, uh, and nobody, the other people didn't know. Yeah. So there's no common source room that's, so they don't have a deconfliction system. No, none for, <laughs> for informants. Of course okay. not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why but, would they, you know, that, that was another thing that blew our mind. We're like, well, how's this person still work in this case if they're not good enough to work this case? You know, any defense attorney could grab that and go, oh, everything she, that person does from here on out's done. You know, no good. The FBI yeah. said, and they, they, they tell all. So yeah, they was, uh, in fact, that's actually current news. You know, we were hearing about this Biden family, uh, you know, 1023. That's our source report document. So the, the FD 1023 is what we write up the interview or debrief of a source. And um, they they protect all of them, whether they're classified or not, whether they're sensitive or not, because they claim sources and methods and ongoing investigation. And actually, um, Chris Ray did that in the same sentence talking about this particular document, which is very funny that you win bingo when that happens. You get all the uh, you get all the chips. But so. It, so when, when they drop the case, yeah, go ahead. Well, I'm just saying it's got to, it's got to give you like a, a lot of pause that, that you can't, you can't trust the federal government. Like <sighs> some of us have seen, you can't trust your state and your local government. Now they've all pissed on you. Did you guys stay in the area? Did you move somewhere? Uh, no, we moved. Okay. Yeah. We moved to undisclosed. We ended up moving like six times in one year before we finally found, you know, a place where we could land permanently. Cause we had this brand new house we just bought and we had to sell it. You know, take a loss on that and and move to the, you know move on and and so a lot of factors were in play um and it, it was just yeah it was a kick in the gut that whole the people you think maybe you can trust or have your back now all of a sudden poof gone and so you look around and you're kind of on an island by yourself not kind of we were on an island by ourselves sure. um still to this day pretty much i mean there's no contact with you know, the department, the the city, the, I mean, we've had a new mayor since then and no, he didn't reach out. And and now the, 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 the city council president that screwed all that up and, and refused to tell the truth. They put him over public safety as an assistant mayor or a deputy wow. mayor. So, you know, there's, there's rewards for everybody except for the good people. That's, that's how it works, right? Only the good die young. Yeah. And, and that's the nature of the beast. Unfortunately that we deal with this sort of thing. Um, maybe, tell people how you've kind of turned this. I know you've turned this into an unexpected industry. You're, you're a good speaker at this point. You've developed that and you probably always could talk cop, but it's a little different animal to go out and speak in front of groups and present. Yeah, it's just not it the is. way that it's not what you went looking for. It's not what you spent your life desiring. I'm sure of it. I know I didn't do the same. What are you doing now? Who, who are you talking to? What are you sharing with them? And what are they taking away from those experiences? I've talked to like FOP groups. Um, I've talked to mainly narcotics uh, conferences around the country uh, a couple other hider groups, different things like that I've talked to, but um, there's a statement, and I hope I don't screw it up. Um, it says, when you're in a dark place and feel like you're being buried, you're actually being planted. And so there's a reason. You know, I feel like the world's on top of you and the dirt's closing in, but actually you're a seed getting planted so you can go help other people. And so if I can take this experience and go, hey, we made it through this. 
We came out the other side. Whatever you're going through, guys, number one, don't make the mistakes I made. Don't trust the people you shouldn't trust. Document everything. You do all the things on the police side. But aside from that, the mental health part, the, the fact that, you know, people go through divorce. I mean, look how many suicides there are now with cops and military. You know, it's because at the same time, they've got all this scrutiny and pressure. They're still human beings. They still got lives. They're going through divorces and bankruptcies and deaths in their family and all these things. And at the same time, have to turn that off like a robot and go deal with the public. And and some guys just can't handle it. So um, just getting out there, trying to trying to spread some hope and go, hey, your department may not have your back. But most of the public does. And it's hard for them to see that. It was hard for me to see it at the time. Um, but they do. I think the general public, 70% of the people want police. They need police. They know we're here for a reason. Are there bad cops? Absolutely. But the majority are good people who are just, you know, doing what they can to make a difference. I think that's a that's a good takeaway point for all this stuff. And it's also a great way of reframing just a tough situation. I'm glad you're still standing. I like seeing guys like you still standing, even after taking those hits. Um, where can people find your book? Where can they, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll plug it again for those of us who stuck to the end, tell them where they can find your social media. It's just all the plugs rock and roll. Yeah. So the best place to find the book is on Amazon. It's on sale right now. I think it's like 16 bucks. Um, so that's the best place to get it. You can still go to Barnes and Noble and books a million. It might be on the shelf. They may have taken it off by now. I don't know. Um, so get the book there. If you, if, if nothing else, get it, read it, pass it on. I don't care how many sell. I just want the truth spread. If it's in a library, I know it's in a couple of libraries around, go to a library and check it. I don't care. It's not about the money. It's about getting the truth out. And uh, social media wise, it's all Sergeant Mattingly, S-G-T Mattingly, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-O-I. Some people put D in there. So it's Sergeant Mattingly on, on any of your social media platforms. And you know, I love to interact with people. So I look forward to talking to some people from the show. You have uh, open DMs like me where people can get rowdy and see yeah. you. Yeah. <laughs> that's, a, that's a spicy I don't, topic, I, right? Bring it on, you know. Yeah, no, no fear whatsoever. Uh, and then you have a website. If people want to book you to speak, if somebody wants to come in and give either the inspirational speech, or your story that it didn't break you, or if they want to bring you in for a police uh, group, you know, where can they yeah, uh, book you? go to the website? It's still under construction. So if you've got anybody that can help me out there, I'd appreciate it. I'm, I'm in a, a very rural area, again, disassociated with everybody else, and I'm very technologically challenged. So, uh, yeah, so you can go to sergeantmattingly.com and you can at least the number on there is to reach out or the email if you need to reach out and, and, want a booking. Fantastic. But I really appreciate you spending the time with me. If something changes, if you get another hit put on you, better we better go talk about that too. Uh, you let me yeah, know no if it's mutual defense. We'll come hunt some people down, keep them off your family. I'll take, I'll take you up on that. Yeah, 100%. I got two, I got all the fun tools too. Everyone always laughs. Like, what, what do you not have? And I'm like, I got suppressors. I got thermal. I got night vision. I got all the dumb stuff. Um, nice. Fed salary invested well, I guess, before I have no Fed salary whatsoever. <laughs> All right, man. Um, well, hopefully, hopefully you've been planted and you can, and you can go a different direction and I feel like my place and, is, and pay off. Yes. Yeah, to share these stories. I think so many people yeah. want to hear them. I, I want to hear them as well. And I want to, you know, give people a voice if they don't have that big platform, send it. One more thing. The big takeaway from, I want people to get from the book. It isn't a woe is me. It isn't feel sorry for me. It isn't, it's, it's a warning. It's a wake up call going, Hey, if we don't support our police, if you start buying into every every single claim you hear without investigating it, without waiting for the cake to bake, we're losing guys. We're losing a large portion of good police officers. And the problem with that is at some point, and they're already doing it, look at the Memphis case where they just injected these guys, gave them guns and badges, didn't do background checks. And then they go out and, and murder somebody. That's a murder. When you're, when you're taking turns, holding somebody up, punching them, beating them, kicking them in the head, that's murder. 
And that's not police work. But unfortunately, the longer we go down this path, the more we're going to go to that. That's going to be the norm. We're going to have the the New Orleans and the Detroit of the 80s. We're going to have corrupt cops. And nobody wants that. That doesn't benefit you. It doesn't benefit me. It doesn't benefit society. So if you want good people that are going to take lower pay to do a crappy job, then at least treat them right. That's it. Amen to that. 100%. Well, we, uh, we're always back in the blue here. I always tell people, state and local, get it done. Feds are in the way. I could do without them. If they shut down, uh-huh. you never even notice. I, I honestly believe that, having seen people uh, in the federal workforce disappear and not do their job. So thank you for your 21 years of service to your community, and I know you're out there still adding to it. And um, we'll have you back again at uh, just just for updates. Sometimes I just like to ping stuff a bit against cool people. We'll yeah. have you on one of our roundtables here, and we'll talk cop, cop stories. I appreciate John. it, Cal. Thank you for having me, man. Yeah, thanks, buddy. Enjoyed it in a big way. All right, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. You have been listening to our long-form Monday interview with John Mattingly. That's at Sergeant S-G-T Mattingly, M-A-T-T-I-N-G-L-Y. You can find him on Truth Social. You can find him on Twitter. You can find him in the show links below. If you want to buy his book, it is on Amazon. I've got it on my list of things to go and uh, check out soon with my next cart. And uh, if you liked what you heard, please hit that like button. What did we say? We said it in the chat earlier. We said, um, like the smash button. I I think that's really good. I think we might start saying that. If you uh, want to hear more of these, you can subscribe to the channel on Rumble. We go live 8.30 in Texas, America, Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. You can see us in the chat. There's a a whole bunch of you all that are in there, and I do appreciate what you've all been getting into. Um, I want to uh, make sure that we read one of our five-star reviews. Folks, we are almost at 450 five-star reviews. We've only been doing this for about five months. So that is an awful lot of reviews. I'm very grateful for all that. That's just on Apple, by the way. That's just the Apple podcast app reviews. If you want to go and leave one of those, you can uh, click the link in the show notes. And when you do, you may pop up on the list here like Lieutenant John. He just said, great job, brother. Keep exposing the corrupt practices. As we can see from uh, from John Mattingly's story, it, it doesn't matter whether it's state, federal, local. Politicians are going to do politician stuff. We're in this. We got to hold them accountable. And uh, that's what this show is all about. You can find us on Apple, on iHeartRadio, on Spotify, any of the places that you find podcasts. You can also talk to your your Google spyware uh, device that's sitting in there, the Echo or the Alexa, and say, hey, Alexa, play the Kyle Serafin Show podcast, and we will pop right up for you. Uh, folks, thanks for spending your time with us. Over 300 of you in the chat during this, uh, during this show. I'm really impressed, humbled, and grateful. Look forward to doing it again. I will see you all on Wednesday. I've already got a fantastic mindset. We're going to be talking about the zombie apocalypse of white supremacy. I think you all know what I'm talking about. We're going to get this done. See you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening to The Kyle Serafin Show. Be sure to follow him on Twitter and Truth at Kyle Serafin. 